You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. You're now tuned into the Pod Awful channel. Pod Awful. Bi-quarterly women's social club. Days and convicted. Blue party radio. Show King. The devil's advocate. The projection booth. Awful flips. Pod Awful. Support for the Projection Booth Podcast comes from Stitcher Smart Radio. Now podcast listeners can access the latest episodes of the Projection Booth and thousands of other podcasts on the go without downloading or syncing. Stitcher instantly delivers episodes of your favorite shows to your mobile phone. Stitcher Smart Radio can be found in the iPhone and Android app stores or on the web at stitcher.com slash booth. Tonight, I would like to ask a common question. Why are we enemies of the Jew? The Jew is both the cause and the beneficiary of our slavery. If we ignore our destiny, he will triumph over us and our future. The Jew thrives in filth and garbage. He spreads disease. He steals our possessions and lusts after our women. He pretends to be a friend of his victim, and before the unfortunate one knows it, his neck is broken. We are Jew haters because we are proud to be Aryans. It isn't true that we eat a Jew with every breakfast, but it is true that the Jew is slowly eating away at our future. And that is going to change as surely as world supremacy is the birthright of the Aryan race. This has been Howard W. Campbell Jr. Heil Hitler. Your government will never acknowledge your role as an agent. You come looking for a pardon, they'll deny they ever heard of you. Well, how many people did know what I was really doing? There were three of us. The third, I'm sorry to say, is dead. Why doesn't the government come forward and say this man you're spitting on is a hero? Your role will remain classified, and Uncle Sam's official position is that you're the scum of the earth. What are you thinking? I'm a Nazi? I wasn't a Nazi. (laughs) Take a good look at your crowd and friends, because you're next. Even if you weren't a spy, you could never have served the enemy as well as you served us. All the ideals that make me proud of being a Nazi, they came not from Hitler, but from you. careful what you pretend to be because in the end you are what you pretend to be welcome to the projection booth i'm your host rob st mary and joining me of course my co-host mr mike white 
I actually have nothing clever to say this week. Well, you know, it happens. And our special guest co-host, Keith Gordon. Well, I have nothing clever to say either, but he got to do it first, so he's even still more clever than I am. Well, we'll see as time goes on. This week, we're talking about Keith's 1996 film, Mother Night, based on the novel of by Kurt Vonnegut. It tells the tale of an American playwright, Howard W. Campbell Jr., an American living in Germany during World War II, who's recruited to give coded broadcasts that sound like Nazi propaganda, but may have actually helped the Allies to win the war. Campbell is played by Nick Nolte, not a political man, but his actions show that you need to be careful of what you pretend to be. This week's a little different than most. Usually we interview a filmmaker, but actually Keith is joining us for the entire show. So instead of asking Keith what he thought of the film when he first saw it, I don't think that question is going to work. I just wanted to ask to start off, Mother Night, how did it come to your attention and when did you decide this was going to be your next film following Midnight Clear? Well, first let me say that when I first saw the film, I thought it was a masterpiece. I thought it was perhaps <laughs> the greatest. Um, no, it, it was um, basically this, this film came out of uh, friendships. Um, Bob Whitey, uh, Robert, Robert Whitey, who wrote the screenplay and produced the film with me, uh, was one of my oldest and best friends, and uh, he also had been friends for a long time with Kurt Vonnegut. Um, he'd been doing a documentary on Kurt's life and still has it in process. I mean, he still has hours and hours of footage, and I think, you know, I hope one day he'll put it together and, and, and make an incredible film out of it. But Bob's won all sorts of awards as a documentary filmmaker, among other things. Anyway, he and I had been friends for years and years, and we always talked about wanting to work together. And I believe it was Bob who came up with the idea of trying to do something by Kurt, because he and Kurt were so close, and that he felt he could get the rights from, from Kurt to do something. And I was a huge Kurt Vonnegut fan, as was Bob. Um, so we kind of sat around talking about Kurt's different works and what, what could be adapted to film, because there certain things we felt it just weren't meant to be films. And we also knew that being who we were, which was not you know powerful and famous, that we probably were not going to be getting tons of money, so that there were wonderful books like Sirens of Titan, but that take place all over outer space, where you know the kind of money it would take to do that justice was just never going to happen. So we tried to look at the works that could be done on a reasonable budget and that we felt would translate well to film. And we went back and reread, you know, Player Piano, and, and, and you know, Mother Night was one that we both read and said, you know, this could really work as a film, and it could work as an independent movie. And we got very excited about the idea. Um, and so Bob said that he wanted to take a crack at, at writing the screenplay. And I was working on something at the time. Um, I guess I was, I was doing maybe with the, with the distribution of A Midnight Clear. Um, so I, I said, I said uh, you know, by all means, take a first crack at it. And I will admit you know, to being somewhat cocky because I had written a couple of movies and Bob hadn't written one yet. So I thought, well, he'll write the first draft and I'll come in and you know, fix it up. And instead, I got this script from him, and it was amazing. And it managed to capture Kurt's voice and, you know, to capture everything we've loved about the, the book and yet not be a slave to the book. I mean, he did add things and subtract things, but it really was wonderful. And, and so far from rewriting the script, about the only thing I did, the only contribution I can claim on the script was helping to edit it down. It, it was a little long in Bob's first version, so I, I just helped kind of pare it down a little bit to a more makeable length. But, but he wrote a, an amazing adaptation of what's a very, very difficult piece of work. And, you know, that was, that was, in retrospect, the easy part. Then the hard part was the next five years or so as we tried to get money to actually make the thing, um, you know, because... Is uh, trying to make a 
a movie with this kind. We always laugh about you know the logline. You know, most people would go into meetings and you know, what's the logline for your movie? Most loglines are are you know easily sellable things like you know boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl back. Our logline was nice Nazi hangs himself, and you know that that that's that's really a hard place to start from when you're trying to you know convince people to give you their money. Um, and uh, it took quite a while and it, and a lot of uh, misadventures before we finally got to the place where we could make the movie, um, which really revolves around getting an actor who, you know, excited by this part, which we thought was an amazing role. But again, because we didn't have money to throw around, it was just getting to the kind of actors we wanted was very, very difficult. Um, and Nick was actually the very first person we thought of and we sent it to his agents. And his agents were like, absolutely not. He's not doing this. He gets paid $8 million a film. He doesn't do independent movies. This is this weird, dark film. Why would he do this? And so that was really you know, disappointing because he was sort of an ideal. And then we went on to other actors that we were excited about. And, and for a brief while, we had Anthony Hopkins attached, which was amazing and exciting. And then uh, at the last second, he changed his mind about doing the film. And uh, at about that time, Ruth Vitale, who was running uh, Fine Line at that point, which was New Line's um, sort of art film arm, uh, read the script and she loved it. And she said, look, we want to make this film, but... Uh, we, will, we can only make it with one of three actors. Um, we will make it if you get Robert De Niro, um, Daniel Day-Lewis, or Nick Nolte. And we were like, okay, well, we already know that Nick isn't interested. So um, we went to Daniel Day-Lewis, and many, 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 many months went by, and his agent finally said, look, he's you know backpacking around Europe. I can't even get him on the phone. So we were like, all right, well, okay, let's move on to De Niro, who would also be amazing. And again, we waited many, many, many months, only to get someone in his company to reply that amounted to, well, he likes it very much, but he doesn't want to be in it. He might want to direct it, which certainly didn't do me a lot of good. So um, we kind of were sort of a little bit dead in the water. And then as the fates would have it, and the only way you ever get a independent film made is for the fates to be kind, um, Bonnie Timmerman, who was a casting director I'd known from my acting, acting days, called out of left field and said that she was casting this movie. And they were looking for kind of interesting people to have in like little parts. And did I want to, you know, do any acting anymore? Or had I just completely given it up? And I said, well, tell me about the movie. And she said, it's called I Love Trouble. And it stars Nick Nolte and Julia Roberts. And I was like, yeah, I'm interested. Um, and uh, she said, well, that's, that's great. I said, you know, but I'm, I'd be particularly interested if you could get me in a scene with Nick Nolte. And she said, why? And I was like, I just, just I'm a fan. I just think that would be cool. And so as luck would have it, um, there was a two-line part of Andy the photographer. Um, and I spent four days on set because it was this big train crash scene. So I got a chance to go up to Nick and, and thinking I could easily just get punched in the mouth or thrown off the set. said, listen, I'm really not here to do a two-line part. I'm here because I want to know if you ever read the script that was sent to you called Mother Night. And he was like, no, no, no. And I said, well, it's Kurt Vonnegut. Oh, I, I, I love Kurt Vonnegut. And uh, I thought, okay, this is this is pretty exciting. And and luckily, Nick's longtime assistant kind of knew who I was and said, Nick, look, this guy's legit and he's a good director and he's done some stuff. And so I gave Nick the script and then didn't hear anything for months. And we thought, okay, well, that's you know that that's a dead issue. And um, you know, I, I I called the assistant. And he said, you know what, Nick loses everything. Just just send another copy of the script. And I'm like, okay. And about three weeks later, I came home, and on my answering machine, there's this voice going, uh, uh, Keith, listen, it, 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 it's Nick Nolte. I, I read the script. I love it. And it sounded like such a bad imitation of Nick Nolte that I assumed it was Bob screwing around with me. 
And it turned out it wasn't. It turned out that Nick on the phone sounds like somebody doing Nick. And um, I went up to his little compound in Malibu where he had this like, chunk of beautiful land and all these houses. And we talked for about six hours about how we like to work. And, and he was like, okay, I'm in. And that was that kind of miracle that allowed us to get the movie made, which is what it always takes to get this kind of thing done. It's funny that he wasn't doing independent movies. And really, he hasn't done a whole lot over his career. And I think really these days, that's kind of where where he could find his forte. Like uh, I kind of picture him as doing like more of a Bruce Dern thing with Nebraska and being in these smaller films where he is able to have such a large presence. Well, he actually, you know, he has. I mean, some of them got, have gotten a lot of attention, but certainly, I mean, the next thing he did after after Mother Night was um, was the, uh, the uh, Paul Schrader film, um, uh, which was so amazing, and um, Affliction. You know, and he really, if you, if you, if you look at his... Most of his work over the next number of years after that, from North Fork to, uh, you know, Breakfast of Champions to The Good Thief to, I mean, he really did mostly small films um, for quite a number of years. And it's only been, you know, in recent years that he's gone back doing kind of supporting roles in bigger films, but interspersed with small movies. I mean, just some of the small movies are just the ones that never got a lot of attention or never got a lot, you know, he did, um, uh, what was it? It was the Oliver Oseas film, um, Clean, which he was amazing in. I mean, actually, He's probably done ten or fifteen of them, and and from the kind of person he is, I, I would say I, I venture a guess that he enjoys them much more because he he loves you know he loves to play and he loves to push push the limits of characters and he likes challenges as an actor and you're probably always going to tend to get those more in, in, in smaller independent films but but so he really has actually spent a good deal of his of his career since in that world um, you know along with the occasional big film I'm sure that's the, as a payday because um, the one thing about doing these movies is you don't get very much money but we were the first we were we were his first step into his his ascent or decline depending on how you want to define it I mean from his agent's point of view I, I don't think they ever forgave us they were like you know we don't want him liking these movies because he gets paid you know, one twentieth of what he'd normally get, but but for him, I think it was a lot of fun and, and reminded him of why he wanted to be an actor. At least that's what he you know talked about while we were doing it. So that was kind of exciting. They're holding out for another another forty eight hours. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and believe me, I'm sure it's been talked about. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, if they're still working on Beverly Hills Cop Four, I'm sure there's uh, yet another forty eight hours hanging oh, out somewhere absolutely. out there. I always had this picture in my mind, and I know the very first time that we talked, I kind of described this to you, and, and you burst my bubble, but I'll still say it again. I always had this picture in my mind of you basically doing the exact same thing that you did to Nick Nolte, but doing it to Kurt Vonnegut Jr. on the set of Back to School and being like, I am such a big fan. I would love to adapt one of your films. And then that's where you guys strike up this friendship that went on for years and years afterwards. Dad. Why don't you join me on a little reality break, okay? Just because you're in love with Dr. Turner, that does not mean you're going to pass her course. And you've got a major paper coming up on Kurt Vonnegut. You haven't even read any of the books. I tried. I don't understand a word of it. So how are you going to write the paper then, huh? Hi, I'm Kurt Vonnegut. I'm looking for Thornton Mellon. Uh, you want to come in? Well, it would have made for a better story, so I probably should have just lied and said that. But um, 
No, I was so shy around Kurt. You know, it's so funny. I, I've met a lot of famous people and gotten to work with a lot of famous people, but there's only a few that leave me, like, kind of speechless, and Kurt was one of those heroes who was such a big hero that I didn't know what to say to him when he was on the set of, of, of Back to School. So I said hi, and kind of, I'm honored to meet you, and that was about it. I was just way too... And it's funny, you see, and Rodney immediately struck up this, like, friendship. They were, like, sitting and telling dirty jokes and laughing their heads off, and I just, I just didn't... I felt too nervous, and... He had been such a hero for me growing up that I didn't know how to... I mean, I, I felt really lucky that I then, through doing this film, got to know him a little bit because he was a truly remarkably wonderful man. But, uh, but no, I was just, just too damn shy to strike up that, 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 that friendship years earlier. Um, you know, and that's happened to me very, very rarely in my life. But I, think, I think when I was like nine and met Ron Sabota of the Mets, I had a similar reaction, uh, but, but it's not, not been common. So I guess we should talk a little bit more about the plot so folks that haven't seen the film, which is not a good thing, but they should check it out immediately because we will get into spoilers with this, um, even though you kind of already got into spoilers when you talked about the log line. But <laughs> Yeah, that's true. I mean, you, you, yes, well, you can leave that in or not. I'll leave that up to you. But, uh, it's funny because it's a spoiler. Spy movie, but it's a spy movie that doesn't rely on suspense. I mean, it's much more of a character study and a satire and a tragedy of, of, of this man's journey than it is. You know, there are twists and turns, but it's not told in a kind of edge of your seat twist and turn way. It's really much more of a contemplative and occasionally blackly funny movie. And basically, the story is that that uh, Nick plays this this man living in Germany before World War II, and he's very successful as a playwright. He's married to this beautiful actress who's the daughter of the chief of police of Berlin, and and he has this kind of idyllic life. And, and meanwhile, the Nazis are slowly rising to power, and he's one of those people who's determinedly apolitical. He's not going to take sides. He's not going to, you know, he's just going to write his plays, which are romantic fantasies. They're not political plays, and enjoy his life and not get in the middle of it. As the insanity of the world descended on us, my Helga and I survived by pledging our undying loyalty to the only nation that made any sense to us. It was called Das Reich der Zwei, the nation of two. And then John Goodman, who plays, as his character calls it, his blue fairy godmother shows up. And basically, he plays a guy from the U.S., the OSS, you know, the, the, what, the precursor of the CIA, who recruits uh, Nolte's character to be a spy. Who are you? Well, wait a minute. This gets better. So this fellow knows there's a war coming. He figures America's going to be on one side, Germany's going to be on the other. So this American, who's been nothing but polite to the Nazis up to now, decides to pretend he's a Nazi himself. And he stays on in Germany once the war comes and gets to be a very useful American spy. <laughs> I asked, who are you? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I got so carried away. There you go. That's me. And he does it by appealing to the to Nolte's characters, Howard Campbell's love of romance and good, and and the playwright's desire to like write. At one point, he, you know, Nick's character says, "It's every playwright's dream to write the most difficult character you can imagine and then play the part yourself." So basically, Nick becomes a spy for America, but he does it by becoming an incredibly successful Nazi propagandist. And he goes on the radio and makes these horrible, really grotesque anti-Jewish speeches and, you know, to kind of bolster morale in, in, in Nazi Germany. But hidden in his speeches are little ticks of the voice or, or pauses or clearings of the throat that are code that are sending messages to the U.S. And he doesn't know what those messages are. He's just the messenger. 
So on one hand, he's getting this important information to the U.S., but on the other hand, he is really being incredibly effective as a Nazi propagandist and is inspiring people to go on fighting and killing Jews and, and doing all this horrible stuff. And that's why sort of the, the, the key line from the preface to the book that we took as the key line of the film is, you know, be careful what you pretend to be, because in life, in the end, you are what you pretend to be. And that's a pretty interesting, uh, you know, idea to deal with. I mean, Vonnegut writes it, you know, it's the only book of his that it's, he knows what the moral is, and, and that was the moral. And so you've got this man who, in the name of doing something good, does something really terrible. The film is largely his own exploration of whether he is a war criminal or not. He's at the very beginning of the film, he's being arrested by the Israelis who find him sort of a Eichmann in New York and, and uh, kidnap him and take him to prison in, in Israel to await trial. And while he's waiting for trial, he's kind of reflecting on his life because they ask him to write his life story. And he's not sure himself if he's guilty or innocent. And so it's his journey through his past to try to figure that out. And along the way, in t- typical Vonnegut fashion, you know, things go from tragic to bleakly funny to tragic again, and, and it goes sort of all sorts of unexpected places. But it's a rather remarkable story. And this really, really raises all sorts of questions about, you know, what is good and what is bad. So let's go ahead. We're going to uh, let folks know a little bit more about Kurt Vonnegut, and we're going to take a break and play an interview with Gregory D. Sumner, the author of Unstuck in Time, A Journey Through Kurt Vonnegut's Life and Novels. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resent at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show i put no work into it enjoy the rest of the show you lucky son of a gun so the name of the book is unstuck in time other than the billy pilgrim reference there why unstuck in time for this book it kind of refers to kurt vonnegut's life and the various chapters of his life and how his fiction and what was going on in his life intersect and kind of blur even more generally i think it i think that's how vonnegut viewed how all of us live our lives you know, we're all unstuck in time. Sometimes we're five years old. Sometimes we're 80 years old. Uh, we're, we're constantly going back and forth in time. Um, and as you said, more specifically, it refers to the kind of, I think, post-traumatic stress disorder that Billy Pilgrim suffered in, in Slaughterhouse-Five. So a lot of veterans have flashbacks and things like that. So why Kurt Vonnegut? What got you interested in him? And really, what was your first experience with Vonnegut? Well, I'm not a classic Vonnegut fan or, you know, somebody who ingested all of his books. As a young person, um, I'm a little bit later in the baby boom generation. I encountered him in the mid-70s. My brother got a Vonnegut book for Christmas, and he's a scientist, he's a geologist, and he read it and passed it on to me, and I just fell in love with it. My first book of Vonnegut, I probably read in 1975, it was Breakfast of Champions. And I just thought this guy was describing the world that I grew up in. And uh, I had that feeling that a lot of people have when they get hooked on Vonnegut, let's say. They, they feel like they have a friend, maybe an uncle or uh, some some wise person, the kind of dark sense of humor to lead you through life. I felt like that. I felt like, <clears throat> almost immediately, I felt like I had a friend. Uh, another reason I was interested in Vonnegut is I'm from Indianapolis, which is also his hometown. So I kind of know what it's like to be living in Indianapolis, and I admire his Midwestern outlook, Midwestern sense of humor, and, you know, he's very much a Mark Twain 
for the 20, 20th and 21st century, I would say. I think it's very true about his, his sense of humor and satire, and it's interesting uh, with the title, and you were talking about the PTSD aspect, and if, if there's one thing that we come to understand when we read Vonnegut and then also uh, see or hear interviews with him, it was World War II that really put a big dent in him, and it seems he played out a lot of that uh, through his work. Can you kind of explain sort of where he found himself during the war and sort of how that influenced him? He was a private in World War II, inserted into Europe uh, in the fall of 1944, and very quickly found himself wandering in the snow, lost with a lot of other Americans uh, during what's called the Battle of the Bulge around Christmas time of 1944. The greatest defeat of American arms ever up to that time. It was a great setback, the last German offensive in Belgium and Luxembourg. And he was captured, and then he was a prisoner of war for six months, and that certainly affected his life, his sense of, you know, we're not as free as we think we are. We're highly determined. Um, I think But we can overcome that. We can still be human beings, even in the worst kind of circumstances. One thing he said about being a prisoner of war for six months, he said, the thing I remember most is being hungry. And he didn't mean just, I missed a meal. He meant really, really hungry, which is a common experience on Earth, but not for a middle-class guy from Indianapolis. And I think he went in uh, the Army at 175 and came out of his prisoner of war experience at about 130 pounds. So, you know, he, he remembers the deprivation of that period very clearly. Um, of course, the thing upon which Slaughterhouse-Five is based, which was his war story, it took him a long time to figure out how to write his war story. The, the central event, of course, is the destruction of Dresden, this beautiful Baroque city where he and about a hundred other Americans were being kept, and they survived only because they uh, were in a slaughterhouse uh, underground when the bombing occurred in February of 45. So, you know, Kurt Vonnegut is really a person. They came up and the city was gone. Uh, Kurt Vonnegut said that was a terrible sight for a, the son of an architect to see, and his father was an architect. This is a man who saw the end of the world. He really lived through the apocalypse, kind of by dumb luck. And uh, that person, that kind of witness, has something to say to us. So it's interesting, and, and almost all, not almost all, but a lot of his novels, the, the world ends up destroyed. Or there's some kind of apocalyptic uh, event, often caused by um, science gone run wild or something. So I think, you know, he, was, he knew what he was talking about when he was talking about the end of the world. It wasn't just an idea for him. Uh, also, he talked about how... Often in interviews, he said, you know, I grew up in the 1930s loving technology, loving science, and believing it would deliver us from the Depression and from all other human problems. And then he saw, you know, the destruction of Dresden, and then a few months later heard about the the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And he said that that was like, you know, a Christian finding out that a bunch of fellow people of his faith had committed a massacre. It really kind of bothered him deeply that science had, had, got, had run so wild and human beings weren't as in control of it as we should be. But I want to say one more thing about that. He often said, yeah, I was in World War II. Yeah, I was a prisoner of war. Yeah, I saw this amazing event, the destruction of Dresden. But he said that the, event, the historical event that affected me more than anything else was the Great Depression. He was a younger man and you know, he witnessed a lot of people struggling during that time, and he's certainly a child of the Great Depression. You talk about the Midwesternness, and specifically Indianapolis. How does that sort of play in the background of his work? I think it keeps it grounded, maybe in a way that uh, people closer to the center of culture, so to speak. People on the East Coast, for instance, in New York and Boston, a lot of writers gravitate toward there. And of course, Vonnegut lived the last 35 years of his life at the center of the world in New York. But I think you have a sense of being outside 
and he struggled to be accepted by kind of the, the literary establishment. And he thought part of it was he was this guy from the sticks. But I think uh, it keeps keeps his writing grounded. I think a lot of his very uh, simple, plain-spoken style uh, is kind of Midwestern. He gives a kind of wry sense of humor, a la Mark Twain, a la Abraham Lincoln. You could you could name a number of Midwestern humorists in whose line Vonnegut follows. But he was really a creature of this Midwestern city, which had culture. But he once said, uh, you have to be what you are when you're a writer. He said, I could never be, you know, an English, a British person or an 18th century aristocrat. I'm a guy from Indianapolis. And he said, in Indianapolis, we talk about practical things, you know, hammers and wood and building stuff and uh, farming. And he once famously said, uh, people from Indianapolis, when they speak, and maybe you detect it in my voice, sound like a bandsaw cutting galvanized tin. You know, it's not layered over with a lot of uh, niceties. So there's a directness, perhaps. It's sort of it's sort of stereotypical and cliched, but I think it's true. And um, Vonnegut had very mixed feelings about growing up in Indianapolis. You know, he felt it was, it was a place that didn't really accept artists, didn't accept writers, and he had to go elsewhere to, uh, to make his mark. But I think he, as he went through life, embraced his hometown more and more and uh, embraced his Midwesterness. And, you know, like a lot of people in New York, he was a displaced person from another place. And this happened to be the middle of the country. It's one thing to be a fan of Vonnegut's work, to read his his work, and to kind of take it in over the years. It's a whole other thing to sit down and write a book about Vonnegut. How did you come to that decision, and what was that process like? Yeah, maybe only a crazy person would do that. You know, in the middle of it, I wondered what I'd gotten myself into. The books I saw about Kurt Vonnegut didn't really describe the person that I loved and that I cared about and who spoke to me. They tended to be more uh, literary criticism, or a lot of the books were on the kind of on the dated side. I felt the man's story had never really been successfully told. I wrote to Vonnegut. I never got to meet him. We exchanged some letters in the in the 1990s, and. Um, I, I said, I'd like to write your story. And he wrote back, very humble, very kind. He said, I'm flattered that you're interested in my life, but uh, it's, it's hard to write about my life. He said, once I was hired to write a screenplay for the French lieutenant's woman. And he said, I couldn't do it because everything happened in people's heads. And Vonnegut said, that's pretty much what my life was like. Of course, I knew that was not true, that he lived through the Depression. He lived through World War II. He grew, started a family. He had all these different jobs. He, hit, he became a success kind of later in his life. He had a very interesting life, however self-deprecating he was about it. I didn't want to just kind of track down everybody who ever talked to him. You know, writing a biography to me is a, is a different kind of thing. I, I wrote this hybrid book. I tell his story through his 14 novels starting with 1952 Player Piano, all the way to 1997, his 14th book, Time Quake, and then I, you know, take it to his death in 2007. But I just felt this was a guy who was kind of uniquely autobiographical in his work. He once said, um, the most important character in my books is me. And I kind of wanted to dig through these books and say, well, how, does, how does what's happening in Player Piano or Mother Night or Cat's Cradle or Bluebeard or Hocus Pocus, how does what's going on in this book relate to what was going on in his life at that time, relate to issues that he was tr- struggling with. And uh, so I, I was able to find something in all 14 books, and it created a kind of flow for me. So I analyze the books, but I uh, also tell his life story in doing so. And it's, as I say, it's a kind of hybrid project. It was a big job. I had to read, you know, all the... I, I, li- I have to confess that I like some of his books better than others. And my editor said, uh, you have to fall in love with all 14 books. 
I think I did, basically, and found something unique in each of them. And I just found that to be the best way to tell his story. It's funny that Vonnegut himself even graded his own books mm-hmm. and you know, had, had a couple Ds in there. Yeah, right. <laughs> he was very willing to criticize himself. He, he often didn't think much of his work. Uh, but I think as time went on, he became prouder of his achievements. And he, he, gave, he gave himself some A-pluses, too. I think Slaughterhouse-Five is an A-plus, and Cat's Cradle is an A-plus. He, I think he graded himself in the 70s when he went through a bit of a slump in, pro, in productivity and probably in quality. Uh, I, I didn't think he liked slapstick, slapstick so much. He wasn't as happy with Breakfast of Champions as I was as a reader. Um, he was more than He said, everybody writes lousy books. Why shouldn't I? And he was taking kind of a beating from the, the critics in the 70s. So maybe he might adjust those grades some, somewhat. But he was willing to give A-pluses as well. So this episode that we're interviewing you for is about Mother Night. How did that one play into your book? Well, that's, in fact, another reason I kind of got interested in telling Vonnegut's story. I went to see the film version of Mother Night. I believe it was 1996. And I just thought the film was great. Um, Vonnegut himself thought it was okay. Three of his books have been made into films. He really loved the Slaughterhouse-Five film. He didn't like the Breakfast Champion film. He thought the filming of Mother Night was okay. I thought it was great. I mean, it just bowled me over. It just seemed to so faithfully follow the book. Mother Night deals with the Second World War, deals with questions of human agency, deals with the grays in our lives. You know, we tend to think in black and white terms, morally. And, you know, I'm sure during World War II, he discovered in himself some darkness. And uh, Howard W. Campbell the protagonist in, of, of Mother Night he is somebody you can't you don't know if he's a hero or a villain a good guy or a bad guy he's got some of both in him and I think it's a pretty f- profound book about it's, it's one of his leanest books I think it's one of his best <clears throat> realized books and um, as I say it deals with World War II and I think it probes into the grayness that Vonnegut must have experienced during the war I don't know if you did the research into how it developed, but, you know, sort of where was he pulling from, like uh, what ideas or what sources in some way in order to put the story together? Yeah, you know, some of it was uh, ideas that had been bumping around his head since the Second World War. Uh, he, he he said that the, the germ of Mother Night was, uh, he was at, a, at some kind of cocktail party, and he talked to, by chance, a former CIA OSS man who happened to be there, and he was kind of telling some stories. And he came to realize that in order to do underground work, to be a double agent, to be a spy, if you will. And of course, Mother Night comes out in 61, a lot of spy stuff going on during the Cold War as well. Vonnegut came to the conclusion after talking to this man that anyone who is a double agent or a spy has to be crazy on some level, has to, has to so believe they're different, you know, we all have different identities. They have to kind of create this identity, and they actually have to believe in it or they'll be killed. And I think he was fascinated by that psychologically, what, what does a person go through? And, uh, of course, the famous aphorism from the book is, we are who we pretend to be, so we must be careful who we pretend to be. You know, Vonnegut, it's a moral critique of, of people saying, you know, the identities that we take on. Uh, we're not spies in Nazi Germany, but we all live our lives and we all have different identities. You know, we need to be aware of those things and uh, the impact that they have. So, you know, um, I, I think the, the, the trigger point for him, and, and I think, you know, his publisher was asking for another book. Vonnegut came up with his book ideas through a variety of means, but often they were these kind of chance encounters. 
So I think it was an opportunity to talk about World War II and an opportunity to get into these questions of identity and the greatness of morality. What's interesting for me with the film, and you said it is a, a rather faithful adaptation, is that it is so serious in terms of its tone. Yeah. But yeah. then there are things such as the Black Fuhrer of Harlem that is oh, yeah. so out of skew that it makes mm-hmm. you know what? And I mm-hmm. was wondering if, <laughs> if, if you find the book the same way. Yeah, I mean, in a way, it's the blackest of black comedies, and he writes these little chapters with little titles, and there's always a little kick at the end. Vonnegut was a very accomplished short story writer, and his chapters are almost little, like little short stories. There's always a little kick or a twist at the end where you figure out what the title meant. But there are some amazing comical scenes, even though the book overall is, I mean, if you're going to write about Nazi Germany, it's going to be a serious book. But you mentioned the Black Fuhrer of Harlem, and just um, that's one of the great, uh, scenes in Vonnegut literature, uh, these, these fascist, American fascists kind of climbing the stairs to meet Howard W. Campbell, and it's this kind of comical rogues gallery of misfits, a dentist who believes that uh, teeth are the key to racial superiority or inferiority, uh, a defrocked alcoholic priest, an African-American guy who, who says, we sided with the colored people in the last war, i.e. The, the Japanese. Uh, these people make no sense. They're crazy. And I think he, Lonnegut was witnessing kind of the lunatic right-wing fringe of America. And I think, to me, it's one, in, in reading it and also in the film, it's one of the great burlesque scenes in all of his books. So, you know, he always leavens his writing with jokes, with wry commentary, um, maybe to lighten things up. Um, he once said, I use my jokes in my stories as Shakespeare used his clowns in his plays, kind of lighten things up and keep the keep the reader going as we're kind of walking through some perhaps difficult stuff. So your publisher told you that you had to fall in love with all of Vonnegut's books if this was going to work. Did you manage to do that? Yeah, you know... Um, it's like your, your, which of your children do you like the best? He was noticing in my drafts that some of my chapters were more involved and more had more of me in them than others. And um, you know, I think there is a variability to the quality of Vonnegut's novels. There's an evolution to them. There's a, there are a lot of uh, common strains that I can see also. But uh, you know, I had trouble uh, like his first book, Claire Piano, which a lot of people love. It's not written in that kind of short, clipped, concise way that a lot of his later books are, and I prefer those. He was kind of following a formula for a science fiction story. Slapstick, I agree, it wasn't such a great idea, but a great book. It wasn't all that well executed as a novel, but it's I, what I found was that it, all the books are chock full of ideas and observations. They're very, very rich, and I try to walk the reader through those books and kind of pull out what is special about each of these books. Um, so Bluebeard, say, 19... 19- 87. It's a book about what it's like to leave home and then maybe come come back. Something that Vonnegut did in his own life. Cat's Cradle is about science run amok and the responsibility of scientists. Sirens of Titan is about uh, people who go off to war and go off and come back. Again, that kind of leaving and coming back is a recurring theme. Player Piano is about automation. The, the war book is Slaughterhouse Five. I managed to, yes, I, in answer to your question, yes, I did fall in love with all the books. I still have my own favorites, but um, as, as you say, in order for the book to work, I really had to look at each book on its own terms, and I, I found very valuable things in all the books. Mother Knight, the lead character, Howard W. Campbell, he appears, doesn't he appear a couple of times in Vonnegut's books? Yeah, the other time is, he visits Billy Pilgrim and his fellow POWs in Slaughterhouse Five. And again, uh, you know, there's humor there. He's wearing this garish 
uniform of the American Free Corps, this group of people he was trying to recruit to fight for the Nazis against the communist hordes. And he's got you know, cowboy boots and an American flag and cowboy hat. You can just picture this bizarre costume. So Howard W. Campbell appears in that book, and it's an opportunity to show that there's a, there's a middle-aged character in Slaughterhouse-Five who I admire very much, Edgar Derby. Who's kind of this? He's a Midwest, he's an Indianapolis school teacher. He's middle aged. He represents a kind of decency that I think Vonnegut very much admired. And he's about ready to punch out Howard W. Campbell as he's trying to recruit these POWs to uh, fight for the Nazi cause. He's about to sock him just as the rumbles start to happen and the stuff starts to fall from the ceiling and Dresden is being bombed. So he makes a cameo and he's a, a grotesque caricature with, with, who it makes you laugh a bit. I forgot to ask you about uh, mm-hmm. Vonnegut's early career as a writer. How did he uh, develop? What was it through short stories like a lot of pulp writers or was mm-hmm. his career a little different? Well, if you go way back, he was a cub reporter. He was a student journalist at his high school newspaper. His high school had a daily newspaper and he actually became the editor of that paper and he said I got immediate feedback from my peers not from teachers but I got immediate feedback from peers I think he learned to write for an audience out of journalism initially and he actually wanted to be uh, work for a newspaper I think that was a career he was hoping to follow and to me coming out of journalism I like that style uh, kind of Hemingway-esque again concise get to the point uh, don't include extraneous matter he comes from journalism then later on he studies science at Cornell University when he wasn't playing hooky. He did play hooky a lot at Cornell. He went and, again, edited the student paper. But I think science, he admired science. He wasn't a knee-jerk opponent of technology and science. I think that, again, affects his writing. He didn't come from a literary background. He comes out of science. He comes out of journalism. After the war, he worked as uh, in the pub- public relations department uh, for General Electric in New York, and uh, learns again how to get your point across in the, in the minimum number of words. So he has a very unusual um, pedigree, and he started writing short stories. He hated his job with General Electric. He started writing short stories of the kind that were very popular in the 40s and 50s with uh, magazines like the Saturday Evening Post and Collier's. They paid pretty good money for short stories before the advent of television. And he sold a short story, and then he sold another short story, and then pretty soon he had enough money to quit the job in, in New York at General Electric to move to Cape Cod with his family and to really try to make a living as a writer. And he struggled, you know, through the 50s uh, all the way into the late 60s. And But his meat and potatoes, he was a short story writer. He studied the mechanics of writing short stories. He knew how to, uh, he also taught writing, of course. He knew how to write short stories. He viewed them as little gadgets that he created. So he comes out of that background, but really I think he wanted to write novels. And that's why I kind of found, felt those were the key to unlocking Kurt Vonnegut. And he was able to complete his first novel, which is a kind of parody of General Electric uh, in 1952, Player Piano. Didn't sell much. His early books, his early novels did not sell very much. And as you say, they, they were kind of in the pulp section. He was thrown into the science fiction bin. Uh, he was, um, he, and again, I think this might be a reason the establishment, quote unquote, the New York Review of Books and people like that maybe were suspicious of Vonnegut because of his unorthodox 
background. They felt he hadn't paid his dues or he wasn't literary enough. Um, but I, I love the fact that he comes out of journalism, he comes out of science, he comes out of public relations, and all of those kind of techniques he, he applies to his writing in his novels and in his short stories. The thing that's also interesting about Vonnegut, and I can't really think of too many writers of his era, that he became sort of a character unto himself in terms of um, doing interviews and lecture circuit kind of stuff. And he he was in a commercial for coffee at one point. Um, I mean, right. and what's interesting is he also dealt with a lot of depression. And as you were saying, was very self-deprecating and mm-hmm. uh, didn't, you know, you know, how did this public persona, how did this develop, you know, in that way? He was never completely comfortable in these public events. I think he, he liked them and he didn't like them. Uh, his son, Mark Vonnegut, said, my father was an extrovert disguised as an introvert. I think he was a bit conflicted about this public persona. Um, and he cashed in on it, as you said. He, he did stuff for international business, IBM, and uh, for a vodka commercial, and I think for American Express. Um he um, called his public appearances. I think after 1969, when Slaughterhouse-Five became a number one bestseller, people looked at him and said, geez, this guy looks like Mark Twain. He looks like a writer should look. And he was very much in demand on college campuses as a speaker. Um, and again, it was kind of a, he became a celebrity. And he lived, moved to New York, lived in the shadow of the United Nations. Um, you know, I think he was conflicted about that public and private persona. But, um, you know, he would, I think these things also exhausted him. He wrote in a letter uh, that he he called him, uh, he's on his road show when he would do his two or three weeks of public speaking every year. He said, I'm like Willie Nelson on tour. You know, I go out there and I, I pretend to be this extrovert or pretend to be Kurt Vonnegut. Um, but he knew how to speak to an audience. He knew how to be funny. Um, I saw him speak twice and he did these hilarious but insightful graphs of, of, of stories, how they should go. And uh, he got belly laugh after belly laugh. But, um, what I always noticed, he would always smuggle in, certainly when I saw him, he smuggled in some heavy stuff, some morality. Um, he had the audience in Indianapolis rolling in the aisles when I saw him, including me. And then at one point, he kind of spun to the audience and said, what happened to the city? You know, it could have been a great progressive place. It was when I was a kid. You know, uh, what happened to you people? And people were kind of stunned and shocked. He was kind of critiquing the Philistinism of his home city. He always, uh, he, he, when I when I saw him speak uh, in 1991, he had the audience laughing, and then he spun, spun around talking about the, the Iraq war, the aftermath. He said, this was a, a bad war for us. It's not like the war I fought in. And he said, uh, when I saw those young Iraqis after the first Gulf War, walking through the Valley of Death with their hands behind their heads, hungry, scared, he said, I recognize them as my brother. And he said it with such emphasis, it sticks with me to this very day. So, you know, he took advantage of the platform. He used his celebrity to do all kinds of good causes and to raise money for people. But I think there was a bit of an extrovert down there um, that he wanted to communicate, and I think he liked being in front of audience, however much he protested against it. Your book focuses on his novels, but I was wondering uh, what you thought of the series that he did. They were short pieces, but they were also NPR essays called mm. God Bless You, Dr. Kevorkian. Yeah, <laughs> This is one of his later-in-life projects, the late 90s, I believe. The concept is a bit unstuck in time because he interviews um, people who are dead, famous people. I think he interviews Hitler. I, I don't know. I, I think uh, it's a sort of black comedy. 
a way for him to uh, to get across some points he wanted to make without writing a massive novel. He, he, he suffered from a lot of writer's block in those later years, and I think he liked shorter projects. And uh, I never actually got to hear the uh, the God Bless You, Dr. Gavorkian, little blackout comedy sketches, you might call them. But uh, I certainly read the book. And uh, I just uh, it gave him the freedom to do this kind of wide-ranging <laughs> commentary using people of past, present, uh, to 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 get across axes he wanted to grind, and it was a manageable project for him. And I think it was pretty popular, pretty successful. People expected that kind of thing from Kurt Vonnegut, kind of sort of black humor and kind of absurd uh, situation. I'm an admirer of that uh, series, and I'd like to hear it hear it someday. Yeah, it's it's a great little series of audio mm-hmm. essays. It's quite fun. So I'm, I'm sure mm-hmm. it's floating around somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I'll go to YouTube. Thanks so much for coming okay. on and, and sharing great. it with us. Great. I'm glad to do it. It's always fun to talk about this issue. To know something pretty well and to talk about it, I enjoy it. Thanks to Gregory D. Sumner for coming on the show. You can find out more about his book at our website, projection-booth.com. We're talking about Mother Night with the director and co-producer Keith Gordon. We talked a little bit about the casting of Nick Nolte up at the top, and I wanted to ask you about some of the other folks that came in. I mean, you mentioned John Goodman, I mean, Alan Arkin, and um, Cheryl Lee. You know, Cheryl Lee doesn't, I, I think she doesn't, everybody in the in the film really does an incredible job, but, but she has this sort of dual role, and I was wondering sort of how did she come into the project, and what were you looking for? Who were you looking for uh, sort of at that time to play that that role? Well, that was a very tough role to, to play because, as you say, it's a dual role. She had, you know, she had to be believable um, in, in, as as Nick's love interest. She had to be believable as an actress. She had to be believable as that actress as an old woman. She had to be believable as somebody who was pretending to be that actress as an old woman. So it's it was a very multi-layered part. And I had really been a fan of her work. I thought she did great work in Twin Peaks, not just the, the series, but I really thought Fire Walk With Me, you know, was a very, very difficult role. And that, you know, while David Lynch sort of got all the credit and it's a David Lynch movie, I remember seeing that film and just thinking that her work was pretty outstanding. And I started looking at some of her other films and just realizing that, you know, while she had that trap that I think a lot of actors fall into because she's beautiful and blonde and people kind of assume that that's what she was, was beautiful blonde and, you know, and yet she's a very serious actress who took her work very seriously. And, And so I'd kind of been a fan of hers. We did see a number of people for the role. And it was very tricky to get people to, to kind of get the right essence. And we read some different people with Nick Nolte because that, that chemistry was so important. And, you know, my way of casting is that I'd rather see fewer people and spend more time with them. I mean, there's a there's a way of casting in, in, in Hollywood, which I think is stupid, which is you bring in 100 people and you give them like three minutes each. And I don't know what you learn from that because, to me, then you're just seeing if somebody's nervous in an audition or if they're having a good day or a bad day. To me, I'd rather see a lot fewer people with people who I already am interested in their work and already believe in them as actors and then I can really work with them and see how they are with this particular role and and, and that to me is, is sort of more the issue so we probably saw about 10 or 12 women who were all wonderful wonderful actresses but there was something about Cheryl that just popped out that just seemed like she caught all the different sides of it and had such a great spirit about it. And then she and Nick read together, and they just really liked each other, and that was very important. I mean, they had a great chemistry between them. They were cracking each other up in the audition and, and just having fun. And, and, and to me, that was really, really crucial because this relationship is so complicated in the film and goes through so many permutations that their 
they're feeling good as human beings working together and their acting styles being being complementary was, was was really important. So I think they improvised stuff together in the auditions and they were bouncing off of each other and you know that's how you know when things something's good in an audition when when you start watching this you, you know, kind of you stop taking notes and you start watching the scene to see what's going to happen like you're an audience and I found that was that's happening to me and and Bob had the same reaction and and Nick had the same reaction. I remember after, you know after the audition Nick was like I love her I want her to do the part and and, and finally I was a little skeptical because again she hadn't done a lot of things where it was about the acting and, and where she got a lot of attention and there were some other actresses who were sort of higher profile but then they saw the tape that we made of her and Nick and they went yeah you know what you guys you're right you know she's pretty great and so I was really glad that they had said yes because there was really nobody who was a close second there was just something about her in that role and with Nick that just worked um, the other actors it was a whole different thing I mean the other people like Alan Arkin we just went to and were lucky enough that he said yes Alan's a, a huge fan of Vonnegut's he, he actually owned the rights to play a piano for a number of years and wanted to try and make it into a film um, John Goodman was again an end around you know his agent said absolutely not he's not doing some little independent movie when you don't have any money you know i managed to get him the script through other uh, another way and he read it and said absolutely i'll do it and then his agents called and screamed at me i remember picking up the phone <laughs> hearing this, this line of uh, obscenities i mean it was like a, like a bad scene out of uh, uh out of um oh what's the show on hbo uh entourage entourage yeah i mean it was like it was like a comedy i mean this is agent going you i mean just screaming at me but in the end his client wanted to do it so it really didn't matter and 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 john was fabulous and brought so much life to that character but you know i think a lot of it was people love kurt and a lot of a lot of people had kind of grown up loving his writing and wanting to be a part of it and then people also loved nick and wanted to work with nick because he was just known as not only a consummate actor but a very generous actor and a fun guy to work with so i think between those two calling cards we were able to get a lot of amazing people to be a part of it and then some of the other supporting roles i had you know people i'd worked with and known and loved like you know ari gross would work with on a midnight clear and, and then kirsten dunst was also another another you know coup for us i mean she she was sort of coming off of interview with a vampire and, and she was we knew that the character of young resi had to have this kind of incredibly sort of disturbing adult quality and she had had that in that movie but again this was a small part it was only a couple of days shooting and her agents were very reluctant but uh you know then she read it and her mom read it and they were like yeah she'll come do this and and she was amazing i mean she just you know it's really just that one long scene that she has with nick but she's got that thing where she looks like she's 10 years old but then she talks and it's like she's a 25 year old in a 10 year old's body and it had exactly that disturbing quality that was in the book and that we wanted in the film. So we, yeah, we were lucky enough to have a, a great, great cast of actors, and 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 you know, people wanted to work on good material. It's the same thing now. I mean, you know, people like to make money, but they also like to work on stuff that excites them, and and, and I think that that's what drew them to this. One of the things I wanted to ask you about in terms of the structure of the film, you talked a bit about how he gives these broadcasts is one thing I noticed when I rewatched it is that the real virulent stuff doesn't really come out until he's taken by the the Nazis that he meets in New York and they take him to this meeting and there's an old film that they show and was wondering sort of like how did you sort of balance that did you decide that that needed to be the reveal later because I think if that was earlier in the film and we heard one of these complete speeches we he, we would have labeled him 
much more evil than sort of ambiguous in the early go. That was actually something that evolved through the rehearsal process. You know, we had a real, you know, we had some real time to rehearse on the film, which was very important. And and we always saw that as sort of the, the climax of his darkness was this really nasty speech that he was going to give right into the camera, and we were filming it, you know, in black and white on a 16 millimeter camera, and we we really wanted that to be. But but we we Bob and I had always imagined that his earlier speeches, what little you'd hear of them, would have some of that same energy. And it was really Nick in a brilliant choice who said, "No, I think we should save that entirely." And rather than basing himself on you know people who were a lot of the Nazi propagandists who were you know loud and shouting on the radio and all that, he said, "I want to base him on Arthur Godfrey. I want to be the guy that you know insinuates himself quietly into your living room and is the nice guy and very avuncular and you know the words may be evil, but the quality is just warm and friendly and that was such a great choice i mean the second we started playing with that in rehearsal it was evident that it was a brilliant idea and 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 you know that's the when you get brilliant actors you're you know then you get brilliant ideas from them and so that's what really led to the idea that there was this huge change when you finally see that one speech and and the logic behind it was that that was a speech they were filming on camera so that it would be different from his radio show it wasn't his usual persona and that they you know his handlers would have said you know we want you to really let go here but it, it led to a one wonderful sort of uh, juxtaposition of what you'd heard earlier and that, that horrifying speech that he gives. And, you know, we have that thing of him, his own face being projected onto his face as he's looking at the old film of himself and really realizing how dark he had been and, and how horrifying he had been. But I agree with you, if, if we had done that too much earlier, it would have lost a lot of impact. And part of it was just Nick's instincts that led us, I think, to, to a much better choice. That use of his face over his own face, I mean, that's really where we kind of tie the timelines together, too, at least the uh, you know, there, there's a few different time periods going on in the film, and to put that younger Howard W. Campbell over the older Howard W. Campbell, um, just you know, I don't know how, like what, a year shy of him going into jail and everything. It's like, wow, this is great, and just he looks like he's you know horrified at his own image. And, and I think he was. I think he was really horrified to re- realize who he had been. And, and I think that was, you know, uh, to me, that's probably my favorite moment in the film. And, and you know, the idea of projecting it literally onto Nick's face was just an idea that I had visually that worked out really well. I mean, you, you often have these ideas as a director, and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. And that one was one that worked really well and I was very happy with. It was a real moment, I think, for that character of him fully realizing quite how evil he had become. And, and again, that idea of pretending to be and pretending to be this man, he had quite become him. And, and on some level had to uh, almost believe in, in, in what he was doing. Uh, it was something Kurt talked about, you know, because we talked to Kurt about the genesis of the character. And, and, and basically, Kurt talked about having spoken to a guy who I guess was a real spy master in World War II. And the guy said, you know, the thing about being a spy is that if you don't literally become the person, you get killed. It really is one or the other. You can't fake it. You've got to absolutely become that person or you will be found out and you will be dead. So the only successful spies are people, he said, who are schizophrenic enough that they literally can become somebody else. And that was sort of what gave him the inspiration to write this character. And, and that's the horrifying truth is that within Howard's personality, obviously somewhere was this virulence and this darkness and this ugliness. And I think Kurt is saying that's in all of us and that's why we have to be careful. You know, and that to think of Nazis as the other, or to think of bad people in quotes as the other is the real danger in life. You know, it's only if we admit that we all have darkness within us that you have a chance to conquer it. But if you go around going, I'm not bad, I'm not a racist, I'm not a bad person. I'm not a selfish person. I'm not a greedy person. That's the most dangerous position of all, because that's when, without you knowing, you can really 
fall into the very, very, very behaviors that you would never think you're capable of. It's only by acknowledging that we all have very dark sides within us that you can really look it in the face and, and try to change who you are. You know, again, not to get too heavy and philosophical about it, but I think that was, you know, a lot of what inspired Kurt to want to write this story. You know, it's really, you know, it's, a, it's you know, Howard is all of us, and that's what's scary. I love that the only real vision of Howard as a young man, you know, you get a little bit there as he's talking about his folks moving over to Germany and everything, but that moment where he's looking at the photo of, of or the book of photos from World War One, and his father's punishing, it for, punishing him for it, it's like... It seems like there's kind of where that we see that darkness and that fascination with the darkness. Absolutely, and that's exactly what it's there for. I mean, I'm glad that that was. I'm glad that came through for you because, yeah, even as and again, what kids don't have that fascination with darkness and death, and I mean, that's a pretty common thing. Um, and and so, yeah, that was. But that's where you see that behind this innocent, you know, sweet little boy's face is played by actually Nick's son, Brawley Nolte, played the young version of Nick. Um, you know, there's behind this angelic face, there's that same darkness already there in his heart. You know, and then we've also had fun playing with the three time phases because we, we, we shot the present in quotes, which is 1961 in, in Israel where he's awaiting trial. We shot that in black and white and we shot his years as a Nazi in the kind of this kind of rich, almost technicolor color. And then his years in New York in hiding in this sort of faded blue color. And, and that was something that, that, you know, we wanted to turn on its head, the usual cliche. You know, normally it's like, oh, the old days is where the color is faded and, you know, the, the, the modern days where it's all bright and colorful. But in the weird warped history of, of Campbell's life, his greatest days was when he was a Nazi. Those were the, that was the high point of his life. He had the love of his life, the admiration of people. He was rich and famous and loved. And so as horrifying as it was, that's when the world was colorful and, and, and beautiful. And then as his life went forward after the war, it says that's as all the color drained away from it till by the time he's facing himself in, in the prison, it's really down to a black and white existence of, of trying to figure out what, what shades of gray he is as a person. So we had, we had real fun visually with, with you know, turning some of the film cliches that you're used to seeing sort of on their head. You talked about Kurt talking to a guy who was in spy service during that time, and I was also wondering, did you have any conversations or did you do any research on Lord Haha and the other propagandists who were doing those kind of broadcasts? Well, Lord Haha certainly came up, and I think a lot of people assume that the character was inspired by Lord Haha, but he wasn't directly. I mean, certainly Lord Haha was an example of the kind of propagandist that that uh, that Campbell was probably probably the best example of it um, you know and, and people always make that 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 connection but it wasn't to be honest what 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 Kurt was thinking of when he wrote the, the script I mean again it came he was he was aware of Lord Vaha, but it was more talking to somebody like I say who had been in in the spy world during the war but Lord Haha is very you know it's certainly an interesting character and and was a lot of things that Nick in some ways didn't want to go to in terms of he if you listen to him he's much more um, bombastic you know all the time and he's not a very he's not really a very good speaker he's kind of stiff and odd and strange and but he certainly was the kind of figure that I mean if Lord Hall had turned out to be a spy I mean that would have been Howard's story but everybody assumes that that's what was that was was uh, Kurt's inspiration but really Kurt said yeah I knew about Lord Hall but it was much more when uh, when he met this other guy who had been you know I guess, I guess he was OSS not CIA but who kind of talked to him about the reality of the spy life that 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 sort of the light bulb went on for him okay let's take a break and play an interview with Mary Kenny the author of Germany Calling a personal biography of William Joyce, Lord Haha. I can remember when I cast my memory back 
My name is Mary Kenny and I'm a writer and journalist and I have been for quite a long time now as I'm in my late 60s and so I'm quite a seasoned writer and journalist if you like uh, over the years both in Ireland and in England. I worked for over 30 newspapers and magazines in Britain and Ireland and um, I've also written six books and um, I've always been interested in writing plays and uh, I've had a play touring in Ireland and I'm you know, uh, hoping to have some more done, um, even at my advanced age. Well, as I always say, an artist never retires. You just keep working. I hope so. Why a book on William Joyce, or as we know him, uh, Lord Ha Ha? Yes, I, I thought perhaps he wasn't really probably as well known in the United States, but he is very well known, um, you know, within the European context because he was the last man to be hanged in Great Britain for treason, and he was in 1945, which of course be 70 years next year. And I suppose I was interested in him because he was partly Irish and partly English, and uh, he was born in the United States, as it happened, and then grew up in Ireland, and he did have some very crazy mixed-up ideas. Um, but I suppose it was, I met his daughter, Heather, who is now an elderly lady, um, and she's a school teacher. And um, it was the interesting conjunction that Heather loved her father as a father, but she hated everything he stood for because, of course, he was a, a fascist and he was a, a, a strong sympathizer with the, with the Third Reich, with the Nazi regime, and he had odious ideas. But she still loved him as a father, and it was this interesting conflict of can you love somebody, you know, as a person and still hate what they actually stand for um, or stood for? I suppose that's what drew me in psychologically, you know, to the whole story of William Joyce. It's kind of an interesting background. As you say, he was born in America, raised in Ireland, and then went on to become this propagandist. What did you find out sort of about his early life that eventually led him on the path? Well, his, his, his father, of course, had emigrated from Mayo to the United States in the 1870s when a lot of Irish people, <clears throat> I suppose, then as now, went to America to find a better life. And, of course, in, uh, in, in, in the whole area of New York and New Jersey, there was a tremendous need for um, uh, people who were uh, skilled in, uh, in the building trade because, you know, it was an absolutely thriving time. And, of course, his father, Michael, was drawn to that. Um, and uh, I think, actually, at some point... Michael Joyce ha, ha, he had a Jewish partner in New York, and New York was this sort of melting pot at the time. You had the Italians, you had the Chinese, you had the Irish, you had the Jews, um, and, and all these sort of immigrants flowing into New York City and uh, and uh, uh, and all around about. And um, 
I think that I, I actually got the impression that Michael Joyce had some sort of falling out with a Jewish partner and developed anti-Jewish attitudes. Maybe it was kind of all part of the kind of competition that people were sometimes, you know, going through at the time. Uh, and, uh, and and Michael Joyce is, did ha- have anti-Jewish attitudes. And I think he transmitted these attitudes to William when he was growing up because I think he had some reversals in business and they, they he and his wife then went back to Ireland. Now, the mother, Gertrude, was a, a, an English uh, woman from Lancashire, but she was a, a woman of um, superior intellect and I don't think she had those attitudes. But I think that William did pick up this anti-Semitism from his father. Um, and he was a man, oh, he was always a very difficult schoolboy, but terribly clever. And um, he was, uh, he had a lot of what we would now call anger issues. I mean, even when he was a schoolboy at the Jesuit school in Galway, he, he, he pulled a gun on one of his teachers, you know, <laughs> which was a, a pretty strong thing to do in about uh, 1915 or 1916. And uh, he was reprimanded. Eventually, I think he was let go from uh, that school uh, because of his, um, you know, he was a very, very difficult uh, boy. But again, he he did have a terrific brain, terrific brain for languages, uh, a terrific brain for philology uh, of various kinds. So he did show this in early life, he showed this mixture of a very vehement character along with a very, uh, with a lot of intelligence. How did he eventually um, sort of end up becoming a propagandist for the Third Reich, Nazi Germany? I know, it was a long story really. In fact, he had to leave Ireland when he was uh, when he was a teenager, because um, he tried to, uh, 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 he was involved with an assassination plot um, against an IRA leader, and the IRA said they would they would take revenge, and so he had to uh, leave uh, as a teenager. He got to London, he got to, to uh, college in London, he was again expelled for fighting. Uh, and then we're moving into the period after the First World War, which in Europe altogether was a period of very strong, rising ideological clashes. And you had in, in, in London, you had a, a, a rising um, socialist and communist movement, and you also had the opposite, a rising fascist movement uh, in the 1920s. In the early years, the fascist movement wasn't considered particularly odious. I mean, people like Winston Churchill actually admired Mussolini, said, you know, he had brought order to Italy and so on. So there was an element of tolerance in the 1920s and where there were almost like gangs in the street, you know. But um, that's where he developed a very strong anti-communist uh, strain. He, and of course, he, 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 he then started to uh, um, identify some communists as Jewish. And so therefore, this all fed into his anti-Semitism. But he did, um, 
you know, found his own uh, um, fascist movement in the 1930s, and he got more and more involved. And of course, British intelligence, the British spies have always been very, very clever at keeping tax on, uh, on, on, on people. And British intelligence had their eye on him during the 1930s. Um, but there was somebody within British intelligence who uh, told William, if there's an outbreak of war, you will be interned. And he slipped away just before the outbreak of the Second World War in 1939, and he got to Germany um, and went to Berlin with his uh, with his second wife, Margaret. By then, um, uh, he, he's by a series of flukes, uh, he found himself uh, in Goebbels' enormous broadcasting empire, and just little by little, he developed this uh, gift for radio broadcasting. He was a ranter, of course, but the, the one, I suppose, the one um, redeeming characteristic that William Joyce had was he did have a sense of humor, and he could be very funny on the radio as well as uh, very threatening. And this was at a time when radio broadcasts, especially in England, were quite formal and quite stuffy. You'll probably know that... Um, BBC broadcasters, when they went to to to, to uh, report the news on on the British Broadcasting Corporation, they dressed up in dinner jackets, even though nobody could see them. But there was a belief that if they were in a tuxedo, therefore they would be very formal and correct. And Joyce introduced all sorts of jokes and and mockery. He mocked Winston Churchill a lot. He mocked people in power, and actually some people in England, even though they thought Joyce was awful in some ways, nevertheless they were very obsessed with listening to him and at one stage he had 16 million listeners which is a heck of a lot actually so he did have this gift um, for, for broadcasting and he did rattle the BBC by his uh, you know he was almost like a shock jock what we would call today um, and uh, Goebbels of course was very pleased with what he was doing i was going to ask you about that sort of what the reaction was at the time when people heard him i mean obviously some of what he was saying they may not have appreciated but you were saying that his personality was was something they could relate to yes and also the the other side of joyce which was quite interesting was that he was terribly um contemptuous of of the rich and the aristocracy and and the sort of posh people uh because he was uh, he you know he was he was very, he had he was anti authoritarian in that sense and so he made mockery uh, of the rich and the powerful and so on and of course quite a lot of working class people you know could identify with that uh, one of the things that he did have as a kind of a sharp political eye was that he always knew the price of bread and the price of milk and the, and and you know the kind of i mean his he, his own family were kind of struggling a bit in England at this stage uh, and so he was he did have this kind of down to earth side and he'd talk about the prices of ordinary things and then he'd make mock of people riding around in Rolls Royces and getting out of uh, posh motor cars you know in 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 Mayfair in London and uh, and um, you know people working class people could identify with that then as the war progressed he had another string to his bow which was that um the the, the Germans 
authorities released to William Joyce uh, names and numbers of uh, Allied uh, soldiers and airmen who had been captured uh, on the continent in Germany in the occupied areas. And um, in a way, this was very helpful because you did have families listening, you know, in Nottingham or Lancashire or Yorkshire, Scotland, wondering what had happened to their husbands and their sons. And William Joyce would come on the radio and say, you know, John Brown, who was serving with the uh, Argyle Fusiliers or whatever, has been captured and is safely in a prisoner of war camp. So in a way, that was kind of quite welcome news that that um, a serving uh, 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 one of the serving troops were actually in a prisoner of war camp because that meant they were under Geneva rules they could be visited by the Red Cross and they weren't dead so you know that that element uh, was quite interesting the Irish meanwhile there was an interesting Irish perspective on all this because um, the the Irish Free State as, as it was then was neutral during the Second World War and, and refused to go into the Second World War on Britain's side because of the old quarrel with England. Even though many Irish men and women chose to serve in an individual capacity, um, and so the Irish listened quite closely to what uh, Lord Haw was saying. And I, when I was doing the research, I found a lot of older people still around, especially the west coast of Ireland, who could remember the kind of things that he said and the details that he went into. He also had this extraordinary memory for topology. So if he'd ever been to a particular town, he remembered exactly where um, the, 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 you know, the, the town hall was and where the local clock was and where the church was. And uh, people thought it was quite eerie that he, he knew exactly where everything was in their town. So it gave him, you know, almost an occult kind of reputation as well. When you look at his place in sort of, I guess, English language propaganda coming out of Nazi Germany, sort of where does he fit into it? Well, he is sort of oddball. Of course, as the war progressed, he, he kind of lost ground then. He became less important, really. The BBC sort of became, uh, realized that they needed to make their broadcasts more cheerful apart from anything else uh, and less lugubrious and they began to sort of modernize much more. So they actually, in a funny way, kind of learned from him. Um, and of course, there was a, there was, he did have a parallel, an American parallel, if you like, a, a woman uh, who was broadcasting um, pro-Japanese propaganda uh, uh, um, from Japan, uh, and she was known as Tokyo Rose. And uh, also the, the, the poet Ezra Pound in Italy, he broadcast uh, quite, uh, really quite repulsive, some really odious and repulsive broad, anti-Semitic broadcasts as well for Mussolini. But the Americans, interestingly, treated their radio broadcasters after the war, they treated them um, much more... Uh, uh, in a much more, um, much less severe way than the British, which was interesting, because uh, neither Tokyo Rose nor Ezra Pound, Ezra Pound was committed to prison for a while, but he, the writers whom he had helped uh, pleaded to the American government on his behalf, and I think that was committed to an asylum for a while. 
so he was actually treated quite gently, really, as a silly eccentric rather than uh, somebody wicked or treasonable. Um, and Tokyo Rose, I think, she just got a couple of years uh, in 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 prison, whereas of course William Joyce was actually executed, and the execution itself became very very controversial because he was prosecuted as a, a British subject because the actual charge was that he had betrayed the king, which was the old went back to the 14th century. He had associated with the enemies of the king, um, and of course. Uh, uh, William Joyce was not a British citizen. He had been born in the United States, so he was actually an American uh, by birth. Um, and this was brought up at the trial, but it was overruled that he had, as he had pretended to be a British citizen, he had pretended to be born in Ireland. Therefore, he had wrapped the Union Jack around him, and in that sense, he was, uh, he had. Uh, committed, um, uh, you know, treason. Um, and um, so it remained with lawyers. It remained, uh, historically, it has remained uh, controversial in the sense that technically he should probably not have been judged guilty as charged on a legal technicality. But I think um, probably at the time there was a lot of anger. After all, in 1945, the concentration camps were just opening up. People were absolutely appalled at what they were discovering about the Third Reich. And, I mean, in France, for example, uh, there was something like 10,000 people were executed, some of them, many of them summarily, without any without any uh, procedures at all, uh, on a charge of collaboration. So there was this feeling of, I suppose, revenge, and, um, um, uh, and, and, and in that case, he, he was indeed hanged. Um, he did actually go to his, uh, his death uh, quite bravely, in a way. I mean, he did, and very defiantly, and he did say, you know, I backed the wrong horse, that's it, you know, sort of thing. But he did say, Heil Hitler, again before he died. So um, he did, uh, you know, and he was, uh, there were all sorts of uh, ceremonial and ritualistic um, ways a traitor had to be buried at dead of night without benefit of clergy in the prison yard uh, and limestone had to be poured over his bones so that he would dissolve. I mean, it was almost, it was a very, very um, medieval kind of ceremony followed. Of course, that did upset his family very much. And they continued to maintain, you know, that he should not have been hanged. And strangely enough, um, you remember then in the 1950s when the Rosenbergs in America were executed as traitors to the United States on the grounds that they had spied for the Soviet Union. Uh, William's daughter, Heather, she went on a march in London, although she was far from being uh, sympathetic to the Soviet Union. She went on a march in London to protest against the execution because she still felt so strongly that people in this situation should not be executed. Do you think that Part of the reason why he was executed and, and put on trial was because he was so public. Because, as you said, he had, at one point, 15 million listeners. Yes, 
absolutely. That was a very important part of it. And, you know, going back over the newspapers of the time, the capture of Lord Hoho, he was uh, hiding out in uh, Schleswig-Holstein and that just that um, uh, borderline between Denmark and, and Germany. Uh, and uh, uh, the capture, it was bigger headlines, actually, than the captures, than, you know, bringing people like Goering in, in, into the dock, you know, bringing the top Nazis into the dock at Nuremberg. That was lower down on, on the pages in the popular newspapers than the capture of Lord Hall. Um, he had one of the things about him was that the the the, the comedians of the time used to imitate him and do um, sort of, if you like, funny imitations of the way he spoke because he he spoke in a rather particular rasping way, where he would come on the radio and say Germany calling, Germany calling, and comedians could make people laugh just by imitating him in this way, so that he was a figure of a popular uh, imagination and identification and you know I, I i suppose that was that that was i mean he did have to be charged i think um because he certainly had collaborated with the third reich and it you know it had to be pointed out what a a terrible regime that was but at the same time probably uh, the 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 you know the legal the legal case for executing him probably was weak. Again, as the Americans during that period um, did not execute their radio broadcasters. And people said, after all, he didn't pass any information really to the, to, to the Reich. What he did was propaganda. So um, 30 years later, in the 1970s, Roy Jenkins, the, uh, he was um, the rather liberal-minded Home Secretary um, in the British government in the 1970s, and he, he acceded to uh, Heather's request to have the remains of William Joyce transported back to Ireland, back to Galway. There wouldn't have been much of his remains, so it was more symbolic than anything. But he was brought back to Galway, and he was reburied in a, a, a wind-swept, Atlantic-swept, rather beautiful cemetery in near Galway city called Bohar Moor, and you you can see the the rush of the Atlantic just next to it. And um, so his grave is is actually there, and his daughter uh, certainly. Um, she went every year I think she still goes perhaps to attend to the grave to clean it and to remember her father so there is a rather touching I suppose element of filial recollection of this man who was as I say a man with very bad ideas but whose daughter nonetheless loved him the name did he ever use his name on the air did he use another name because I realized that Lord Hall was sort of a uh, pejorative that was given to him because of his uh, accent, correct, in his presentation? No, well, he was always um, an anonymous. I mean, in those days, announcers on the radio were not identified by name anyway on any of the European broadcasting. And he did have several aliases because they they did have another... I mean, the, Goebbels' radio network was very extensive, um, uh, he had more than 50 different radio stations, 
broadcasting all over Europe, including a small radio station broadcasting to Ireland, even including in the Irish language. I mean, they, the details. Goebbels was obsessed with um, uh, communications of every kind, both show business and, and communications, the theater, movies, and radio. And of course, technically, the Germans were, were very advanced in the 1930s with radio technology. They were probably more advanced than anybody because they had a lot of technical knowledge of how radio, and radio was terribly important at that time. So he, he, he did broadcast, Joyce did broadcast on some of the other stations that Goebbels had. They had a sort of um, a pretend socialist station uh, called, uh, uh, you know, the Workers' uh, Wave Band, and this was to try to get uh, working-class people, people in trade unions, uh, following the propaganda, and he did do some broadcasts for that wave wave band as well. Um, mostly kind of funny ones, allegedly fun, sort of comical little sketches of which the rich and of course uh, unfortunately he would characterize the Jewish people as being part of the plutocracy of the rich as well, as well as the upper classes uh, would be the uh, object of their, of their so-called humor. So he was kept very, very busy. Uh, uh, he worked quite hard. I mean, if you could put it that way, he certainly was busy all the time. And I think, in a way, that you know, he was very interested in language. And he did go to the um, to, to King's College in London, where he was an outstanding scholar in uh, in in linguistics, and was very um, had, did a very did some very uh, uh, much praised work on languages like Old Norse, you know, which are the, which is the source of Scandinavian languages. So he did have a genuine gift for languages. If he uh, he did apply at one stage for an academic posting in in that college, he had a very difficult personality. He was very combative. If he'd had a, a slightly um, more uh, uh, sort of pleasant personality. He might have been appointed as an academic, and he might have uh, spent the war as an academic and done no harm to anyone. You talked a bit about his daughter, and I was wondering how you met her and then what her take was on your efforts to tell her father's story. Now, she was very supportive, Heather was. And I contacted her because she lives in she lives in Kent, and I knew she was also quite involved in church activities. She's quite a, a serious Catholic, um, and uh, uh, as I say, a teacher, you know. And she she also has been she's she's was married and and has children. So there are uh, several quite a few de- descendants, as it were. Uh, and I suppose I she, she she was very helpful, and she's a very cle- very clever and gentle person. Uh, but it's been a shadow over her life because um, when they were young, when she and her sister were young, they couldn't tell anybody that Lord Hawho had been their father, you know, because they would have been uh, bullied and uh, certainly blamed for his uh, sins, you know. So it was only in the last um, couple of decades that, you know, she felt able to 
really uh, be public about it because, of course, as history recedes, people take a a more detached view and they don't feel so personally involved, understandably. Um, And uh, I also met uh, his his nephew, who is a very respectable man, and, and his wife and children, and he has some collateral descendants who are all perfectly nice, decent people. And he's, William Joyce, is, he's slightly the, the, the skeleton in the cupboard, you know, but um, for some of them. Uh, but still, uh, as, uh, I suppose now more a figure from history rather than a figure, you know, of, 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 of recollection. As for you uh, writing the book, what was you know, sort of the experience for you, something you learned, something you uh, didn't realize about this figure that sort of loomed large over World War II, especially in in Britain? Well, I learned a great deal. I mean, I think one of the great things about writing any kind of book is that you do learn a lot. You learn so much through the research. And I was fortunate in the sense that I I was... I started the research in the 1990s and there were just enough people still alive who who remembered the period and the remembered the 1930s. And, of course, men, many of the people I interviewed have now died because of the time has passed. Um, and I came to realize the best time to write a, a historical book is about 50 or uh, about 50 or 60 years after the events because you will still, because it's becoming part of history, but you will still contact people uh, who who remembered it and who were there. I mean, I did meet some old members of the British Union of Fascists who talked to me, and I did realize, too, that sometimes people join organizations that um, we realize are very unpleasant, but sometimes they have quite good intentions, actually, at, certainly at the beginning, and I did meet some m- older men who had joined the British Union fascists in the North England, particularly, simply out of unemployment. They were so concerned with unemployment problems in the 1930s, and of course we had all those terrible recessions at that time, and people were so hungry, um, that they felt something had to be done to challenge. They felt that democracy wasn't actually helping poor people. It wasn't, you know, and especially I think after the great crash of Wall Street in 1929, I think a lot of people, maybe not a lot of people, but certainly politically active young people they either in Europe they either joined the communist party or they joined a fascist party because they felt that capitalism and democratic capitalism had let them down simply Um, and I could see that you know sometimes there were there were good motives for people getting involved in those sort of organizations even though we've come to see how how much cruelty um, both communism and fascism has uh, brought about. I was going to ask, is there anything you want to add about uh, that book before I ask you about what you're working on now that maybe I forgot to ask you about? Well, I I was was just thinking really, Rob, of uh, perhaps um, turning it into a play, some of it into a play for next year because after 70 years, you know, William Joyce comes out of copyright. He wrote quite a lot himself, 
and um, he it's very strange to say this, but he wrote in a way which was not entirely dissimilar from James Joyce. Um, he because he loved this play of words and James Joyce, in, especially in the later years when he wrote Finnegan's Wake, loved to thread all sorts of nonsense words throughout his text. Um, and William Joyce liked to do all that. And um, somebody in England, a collector, bought all his works. They purchased the right to uh, uh, control everything that William Joyce had written himself. They did allow me to quote parts of it, but I had to pay quite a lot of money in um, in copyright uh, fees to do that. I actually, I think I had to pay a pound a word, which would be two and a half dollars a word to, to quote from him. Um, and uh, maybe not two and a half, whatever the rate for the, power, for the dollars. But um, so uh, I think it might be worth reading visiting it uh, when he comes out of copyright and seeing if it makes uh, the elements of a play. Um, so sometimes it's worth going back and looking at something you've done and revisiting it and seeing where you could have done it better and also where you could only have done it in that way at that time. That's pretty amazing to me that his stuff would be considered in copyright. <laughs> I didn't realize. It is. It is absolutely strange, but I'm not uh, any great expert on intellectual property. But you will know that lawyers themselves can protect intellectual property quite fiercely. Uh, And certainly, if you think of the work of James Joyce, it was very, very strongly protected until 2011 by the James Joyce estate. Uh, And uh, they charged a lot of money for uh, using any uh, uh, extracts of his work. Uh, Of course, he died in 1941, so he came out of copyright in 2011. But there are, of course, there's an extensive number of people who collect Nazi memorabilia. Um, and uh, that's something that goes on in the, in, in the auction rooms. And there is a collect, there are collectors. The, there's a particular couple who collect collected a lot of uh, William Joyce's actual um, possessions and they acquired the manuscripts of, of the letters that he wrote in prison, um, which were uh, very, very extensive uh, indeed. So um, that's, that's, it is strange to think that he, he's, he's copyrighted, but everything can, can be copyrighted now. Um, it, previously, the copyright law was 50 years in Europe, but the European Union sort of arbitrarily put it up to 70 years, which of course made it, made it a little bit harder to quote from sources that were protected in that way. Well, it'll be interesting to see um, if you decide to go through with uh, putting a play together on that, and I would, I would love to hear more about that as it, uh, as it happens. Thank you. Yes, I'll, 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 I'll let you know. Um, yeah, I think that uh, on the question of copyright, of course, some estates are much more liberal than others. Some are very, very protective. Um, but some um, give permission really in quite a generous way. And, and that was 
somebody like the William Butler Yeats estate, you know, Yeats's poetry and his writings, they've always been fairly generous. They've always allowed people to, you know, charities, for example, they never charged charities for reprinting his work. And so, so estates do, intellectual copyright does vary from one person to the other. What are you working on now? Well, I did a little memoir last year called Something of Myself. And um, I also wrote a, a, a book, uh, which was another Anglo-Irish history called Crown and Shamrock, uh, which was about the relationship between Ireland and the British monarchy. And that was published uh, before Queen Elizabeth visited Ireland in, in 2011. And uh, that was a very interesting project because, it, you know, it took me into um, of the archives of uh, uh, the, the Royal Archives and uh, in 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 Windsor and the Irish Archives as well. So, as I said, just 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 for Christmas, published this little memoir, uh, and that's gone down quite nice, quite quite been received quite kindly. Um, so I think you have to leave a little bit of time in between uh, in between projects so that you can kind of recoup your forces. But I am probably turning towards the William Joyce play, I think. I did a play about uh, Winston Churchill and Michael Collins as well called Allegiance. That went to Edinburgh in 2006 and Michael Fassbender played Michael Collins in, in the play. So that was very exciting. Um, and it's been touring in Ireland uh, uh, as well. And so that's been that's been a fascinating project too. I'm very interested in exploring um, perspectives of history, you know, and how the whole, the way that history changes, uh, the way we see history changes so much. In, in, in England and Ireland at the moment, there is increasing focus now at the moment on the First World War, on that period of 1914 to 1918. Tremendous amount of interest, and of course in France as well. And it was a huge upheaval. And I suppose, uh, as you know, the United States, of course, were not involved until 1917. So probably um, it, it, it'll hit the U.S. In, in three years' time. We're on a little bit of a delay. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I was going to ask, uh, what's the best way for people to learn more about your work? Well, I've got um, a website, www.mary-kenny.com. I think if you Google Mary Kenny, journalist and writer, that comes up. Um, and so there's a fair amount on that. Uh, and, uh, of course, we... we uh, we all we're all increasingly using Twitter and uh, Facebook. Uh, writers are doing that more and more. Big big debate actually in London and among writers groups about how much we should be doing Facebook and Twitter because it can take you away from the actual work. Um, but on the other hand, it is very can be very helpful as well to writers. They can learn so much more about what else is going on, and there are some very good kind of writers resources actually. Uh, on on Twitter too so um, we have to now make some time for that Thanks to Mary Kenny for coming on the show and talking to us about her book on Lord Haha. You can find out more about her work and the book at our website, projection-booth.com We're talking Mother Night with the director and co-producer, Keith Gordon so one of the things I, I find really interesting uh, in the film, especially in the 1961 stuff, is when the old Nazis show up at his door 
they they find out that he's alive still and the black fuhrer of harlem excuse me everything all right up here no as a matter of fact august just died oh no that's a shame that's a real shame mr campbell robert sterling wilson the black fuhrer of harlem howard campbell now i heard about you but i never listened to you well that's all right yes we was on different sides I was on the side with the colored folks. Uh-huh. I was with the Japanese. Oh. I hear you say you didn't think colored folks were so good. Now, now, Robert, let's not squabble amongst ourselves. Let's all work to pull together. Now, I'm just telling him like I tell you and the Reverend every morning. Colored people are going to have hydrogen bomb all they own. And pretty soon, they're going to give Japan the honor of dropping the first one. Where? China, I guess. On other colored people? <laughs> now, whoever told you a Chinaman was colored? Uh, I just want to ask you about the, the the three old Nazis, which I love as an image. The idea of racism or Nazis as this old dying white man and this you know young buck black guy who's kind of confused. And just wanted to ask you, you know, sort of how did this image come together? Well, it, you know, that's all from the book. Those characters are all part of it. And that's Kurt's sense of humor. I mean, Kurt was a genius at making fun of the darkness of human beings and, you know, making you laugh at the most horrifying stuff. And those guys are. They're horrifying and awful, but they're also hysterically funny. And it was his way of, you know, kind of taking the air out of out of people who were sort of that kind of far-right neo-fascist movement, which, you know, still exists today, but I think even more existed when Kurt wrote wrote the book. Uh, and how confused and absurd their, you know, that whether it's Ku Klux Klan or whatever, you know, their their literature and their ideology is so twisted around into whatever they want to make it. So you had this guy who called himself the Black Fear of Harlem, and you know he's a Nazi, but he's he's African American, which of course makes no sense at all. Although apparently, you know, there there have been, you know, you you've seen that kind of weird thing happen where where people turn out to be, you know. African Americans who are racist. I mean, you get people who are sort of schizophrenic enough that you get these very strange characters. And and Kurt just sort of had fun with the darkness of all that. And Frankie Faison is a fabulous actor. Really made the character work because um, it's this fine line because he's 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 this cartoon, and yet he still had to be in the same movie as everybody else. And and all and, and all those guys, you know, Bernie Barons who who played Doctor Jones, and they they all had to be very very funny and yet still somewhat in the same movie. And that was very tricky because, and it, and it's funny. One of the things people criticized us for when the film came out was not having enough of Vonnegut's humor. But the reality is that this book isn't as funny as most of Kurt's books. Most of this book is fairly serious. And he's got this sort of weird, dark humor that shows up occasionally, sort of in the midst of what's a fairly straightforward story. And so we were just trying to stick to the, to the way Kurt had written the book, which is mostly as a fairly, you know, honest and emotional tale with these occasional characters that would show up and just be absurdly funny in the middle of it all. And we just got wonderful actors who got right into the spirit of that, and we shot those scenes a little differently. And so there's this little touch of sort of, Monty Python absurdity that goes on in the middle of it, and, and, and certainly Alan Arkin is brilliant at that kind of dark humor, you know, sort of, he's very sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for, sort of deadpan about being about dealing with these guys, and and, he, and that makes those scenes all the funnier. Um, but it was great, and it was very, it was very tricky sort of stringing those, the, the, the funnier moments in, and having them work with all the tragedy around, but that's kind of what, what Kurt's writing, and this book in particular really did, was that it wasn't like, ha, funny most of the book. It just found a few moments that the absurdity broke out. 
Um, and so we tried to stay to that same kind of tone. Yeah, I love Bernie Barron so much. He's been in so many great films, including another one of yours, w- Waking the Dead. But he was so awesome uh, in the film that was eventually released as Invasion, but had the name Top of the Food Chain when it came out, where he was Mayor Claire. And uh, yeah, that that deadpan humor being able to say the most outrageous things and not bust out laughing. And I saw a lot of that when he was, you know, talking about the, the jawline of Christ and the way that the, uh, the teeth of, uh, of all these depictions of Christ were. <laughs> it's yeah, so well, good. He, he was this dentist. So he'd, he'd written a book called Christ was not a Jew. I could never find a copy. Oh, that's too bad. Well, Father Keeley, make a note that we must send Mr. Kraft an autographed copy in it. I reproduce 50 famous paintings of Christ and point out that not one of them shows Jewish jaws or teeth. I don't know what to say. Well, I had to publish the book myself. But what can you expect when the publishing industry is run by Jews? Yeah, it's, a, it's a very kind of wonderfully absurd, absurd and, and disturbing bit of uh, exchange between the two of them. And, and, and Bernie was wonderful. I loved him. I loved working with him. Um, you know, he he's just you know one of those great character actors and just game for anything and and a wonderful spirit and and you know I I, I just you know the, the you don't get a lot of experiences in life that are this great. I mean, I, I've had I've had two in particular. I mean, uh, Waking the Dead and, and and Mother Night were both those kind of once or twice in a lifetime experiences where you're working with a bunch of people that there's no bad apples. Everybody's great. You know, in this case, one of my oldest and best friends was producing the film with me. Rose was working with me every day. Kurt was amazing. Nick was, I mean, it really was, I mean, you know, not to sound sort of Pollyannish about it, but it was, it's a really treasured memory because everybody was so into it and having such a good time and just brought so much to the table. And it was one of those things you just were really, really sorry to see. And, you know, I, I could have kept just shooting that movie forever. Because every day one of these actors would come in with something brilliant, or Bob would have rewritten a scene in some new wonderful way, or my cinematographer would some have some exciting idea. I mean, it just there was just something about the material that sort of inspired everybody to to just put themselves into it wholeheartedly, whether it was whether it was the saddest scene or the funniest scene. And and you know, as a director, that just makes your job really easy and really fun. And I think that's what I like the most is just that kind of twist of how funny it can be versus how sad i mean we talked about the the three white supremacists that show up in the black Fuhrer of harlem but just down the hall we've got you know dr epstein and i don't know if this is it was an intentional joke but being a big fan of welcome back cotter whenever they talked about epstein's mother i had to laugh but that said I can't say that was an intentional joke because it goes, the book was written way before Welcome Back, Connor, but, um, and I had never made that connection before, but you're right. That, that, that is a whole joke that, that is in there as a cultural reference, but I never, I never thought about it, but you're absolutely right. Um, but just but, those two characters are so wonderful. Well, and, and again, those are the, those are examples of, of Kurt's super dry humor. I mean, unlike unlike the the Black Fear of Harlem and and August Craptower and those guys who are more out and out jokes, um, the you know the Epstein's are sort of this very very dry humor of this you know couple of a mother and son who survived Auschwitz who end up you know inadvertently befriending this guy who was this horrible Nazi and and the fact that that the mother sort of knows it and is and is in the end very happy to help him with his request to stand trial for his crimes 
and the strange tension between the two of them because, you know, the son wants to move on and put outfits behind him and the mother can't. And it's, it's not funny in any kind of ha-ha way, but in this kind of very dark, absurdist tone, and maybe, maybe Samuel Beckett sort of way, just these two people that, you know, will never be able to resolve their, their separate experiences of the Holocaust because she lives driven by anger and probably it's the only thing keeping her going, and he lives with the, with the prayer he can forget one day, and yet by living together in the same apartment, they're kind of trapped in this, in this endless cycle of driving each other insane, and it's just this little sub-world of, of its own, and it's sort of tragic and funny at the same time, and, and, and both Anna Berger and Ari Gross are such wonderful actors that they really caught the two sides of it. They caught this is really awful and sad and horrible, and these people were through, they lived through Auschwitz, but they're also, as characters, there's something kind of sadly funny about them. And they managed to, again, walk that line and, and make it work really, really well, um, you know, when it could have fallen off very easily one direction or the other. One of the interesting choices that opens the film is we see the, the prison, it's black and white, there's no real Christmas, we're not seeing any snow, but we hear White Christmas. And I just wanted to ask, sort of, where did White Christmas come from? Well, White Christmas comes from the novel. I mean, in the novel, it does it does have the, and it, which is also in the film, the idea that when um, Howard flees to New York, basically what the government does to sort of give him some stuff is they give him a lot of army surplus stuff because the government can't acknowledge him. I mean, they, when he agrees to do this, they, they, you know, he's told, you know, we're never going to acknowledge that you're an agent for us. If you come looking for a pardon, it won't happen. We, we never could admit that you work on our side. Um, but one of the things they give him when they, when, after the war is they give, you know, get him a little apartment in New York and they give him a whole bunch of army surplus stuff, which includes 26 copies of Bing Crosby's White Christmas that were going to be distributed to the troops. And that's in the book. And I, it was Bob who I think had the idea. I'm not sure if it was Bob or me, but one of us had the idea. I think just when we were starting editing of putting White Christmas over the opening titles because it's such a strange, dark irony and funny and very Kurt Vonnegutian because the first thing you see is you pan down and there's this Israeli flag and this kind of desert-looking place and White Christmas is playing. And so right away you've got this very kind of odd, hopefully funny, um, ironic image. Uh, and how do these things go together? Bring Crosby's White Christmas and an Israeli flag in a prison and it looks kind of hot, if anything, certainly not Christmassy. And so as they're slowly taking Nick to this horrible, decayed prison to this deep inner sanctum, you know, this happy, happy Christmas song is playing all over the place. And that became sort of a theme for the film. And, and, and that irony sort of became a jumping off place for the rest of the movie. Um, but it came out of something, it, we were going to use White Christmas in the movie, you know, but, but we, it, the idea of it as the title music was something that happened just as we started the editing process, and we got real excited when we tried that and saw how it worked. And, and then, of course, the tough part was getting the Irving Berlin estate to agree to let us use it in that way, which was, you know, they were very scared of, and they didn't want to tarnish this kind of, you know, uh, their sort of most precious jewel in their crown. And, and we had to really sort of do a lot of begging and explaining that this is, you know, a, a great work of literature and that, you know, yes, it's an ironic use of it, but we're not making fun of the song. We're making, you know, and, and, you know, we finally won them over, but it was, you know, and that was mostly Bob doing. That was where Bob really earned his money as a producer and was really slowly, you know, seducing them around to, to agreeing to let us use the music. Because if we hadn't, it would have been really tra tragic for us because we, we just fell in love with it as a kind of, running comment on what's going on in the film. So let's go ahead and take another break and play an interview with screenwriter and co-producer Bob Whitey, who's currently wrapping a documentary, well, 
hopefully by 2015, he says, and I don't know if that'll actually happen or not, but we can hope that he's going to be soon wrapping a documentary on Kurt Vonnegut Jr., have had a very kind of long history with Kurt Vonnegut. Can you tell me how you got introduced to his work and what effect it had on you? I um, read him in high school. I actually had a, 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 a I guess it was an English uh, American literature uh, course in high school. And um, But it was, it was a, a, a sort of a sect of my high school that was this kind of progressive experimental program called Open School. And um, I won't go into the details of it, but it was just interesting. They were trying new things, and uh, the the curriculum tended to be, a, you know, slightly unorthodox. So, um, consequently, the book that we read for this class that introduced me to Vonnegut was Breakfast of Champions, <clears throat> which normally wouldn't be assigned reading in high school, um, but it was, and I read it, and uh, I felt that I'd found my author. This was this was the guy. You know, he spoke directly to me. Um, Breakfast of Champions is a very funny book, so I appreciated that. I appreciated his humor, but um, you know, I liked how he was able to take very, um, very real issues, very serious issues about what was happening to the world and to our country and to our culture, and filter it through this very comedic sensibility, as well as through this kind of homespun, you know, who's your bread. Um, sort of approach. So anyway, I, I felt that I found my author the way some people, you know, when they read Kerouac or Solinger or any number of people, you know, become somewhat obsessed with them. This is my guy. So I read everything that he had written. This was in the days of uh, public libraries, although they uh, surely exist. I don't know how empty they are, but uh, when you would go to the public library and you would go to the Reader's Guide to Periodical Literature and um, find old magazine and newspaper articles, and I would read articles about Vonnegut on microfilm, and I'd go into the stacks and have them pull out old issues of the Saturday Evening Post and Collier's and read you know, the short stories and... Uh, it became an obsession. So I, I made my way through his entire canon. By the time I was a, a senior in this high school, um, one of the things that they allowed was if you knew an awful lot about a subject, uh, you could actually teach a class in that subject. So if I had been, say, a virtuoso you know, or a prodigy uh, you know, at the violin, I could have taught a violin class. But um, I, I became a sort of a self-made Vonnegut expert. So by the time I was a senior in high school, I was actually teaching a course in Vonnegut that students would get graded in and get credit for. And so that was that. And then, uh, you know, I started my, my uh, career as a documentary filmmaker not long after that. Uh, I graduated from high school in 1977, and it was probably 1978 that I got the idea to do a documentary on my Marx Brothers, who were my, who were my first loves of cinema, in the same way that Vonnegut was uh, one of my literary heroes, or, or certainly my, my number one literary hero. The Marx Brothers were my cinematic heroes. So 
I decided I was, what at this time, I guess 18 or 19, that I wanted to do a documentary on the Marx Brothers, and I, I did. It took four years to make. It was uh, I was 22 by the time it aired, and uh, it, it did very well for PBS. So soon after that, I wrote a letter to Vonnegut out of the blue. He didn't know who I was, certainly, and, and uh, we had never met, but I wrote him out of the blue, and I said... Um, you don't know me, but my name's Bob Whitey, and I did this documentary on the Marx Brothers because I'm a big fan of theirs, and I'm a big fan of yours, too, and I'd like to do a documentary on you. And um, he wrote back, and he said, uh, uh, which already was kind of amazing to me, to, to go out to the mailbox and find an envelope with that familiar scrawl on it that you see in Breakfast of Champions and a few of his other books, but there it was, and he was saying that, well, he gave me his phone number. He said... Um, you know, call me when you can. He said, I'm, I'm an author. My work is on the page. I don't know how you make a film about me, but you're welcome to try. So here's my phone number and call me. And next time you're in New York, we'll get together. And um, nervously, I did call him and uh, we, we spoke. And then not long after that, um, I was in New York and we did get together at his home. And that was the first time we met and we became very friendly. And the, um, the, um, I didn't actually start filming the documentary for another six years. The first filming I did with him was in 1988, and I'd been filming on and off with him until his death in 2007. And now, as we speak, in, uh, in late March of 2014, the documentary has just recently been uh, resurrected, and I did my first new filming um, just this week. It's the first filming I've done now in 10 years, and uh, we're looking for a release sometime next year. Now, if you started filming in 88 up until the time of his death, how much footage do you have? Um, quite a lot. Wow. Yeah, quite a lot. And um, there were two big trips and then um, some other shorter trips. The big trips were in 1988. We got on a train in uh, Grand Central Station, New York, and took it up to Buffalo, New York, where uh, a uni Unitarian church up there was premiering a uh, requiem that he had written, this humanist requiem, which he's written about, Vonnegut fans will know about it, uh, through a piece called The Hocus Pocus Laundromat. Um, but in any event, it was, a, it was a humanist requiem that he wrote, and then he found a, um, a Latin scholar uh, to translate it into uh, you know, ecclesiastical Latin, church Latin, and then he found a composer to set it to music. And this was being performed by a, a Unitarian church up in Buffalo, and Vonnegut had agreed to attend the premiere and to speak at the church to raise money. And um, so I thought that would be interesting to film, and I convinced him. I said, look, instead of flying, which is what he was going to do, I said, why don't we take a train, which at the time was like an eight- or nine-hour train ride. I said, I'll interview you on the train. That's where we'll do sort of the, the bulk of the interview. We'll talk about your life on the way to the performance of your own requiem, what it was ostensibly. And and one of the cool things about that was that the, you know, the train made a stop in Albany, New York, where his brother Bernard lived. So we picked up Bernard in Albany. He got on the train, and I got the two Vonnegut boys together on camera, joking around and talking. And, and um, so Bernie's in the film as well. Oh, man, that must just be a wealth of, of great stuff. Yeah, it was, it was pretty incredible. And, and uh, you know, as time went by, we got closer and closer, and... and uh, his friendship was a huge validation to me. The, the the other serious trip was one we made to Indianapolis in 1994, which unbelievably now is already 20 years ago. We made a stop in Lexington, Kentucky, where he visited with his old friend Ollie Lyon, who was a co-worker of his at General Electric. 
late 40s, early 50s, and, and uh, he and Ollie remained friends to the end. And then uh, I got uh, Kurt working on some of his um, silkscreen uh, artwork, his prints and posters, uh, with his collaborator Joe Petro in Lexington. And then we went on to Indiana, to Indianapolis, and uh, I filmed him in his old home, his boyhood home. I filmed him in his bedroom. Uh, in the house on Illinois Street, which his father built. And again, Vonnegut fans will know that his father was an architect, as was his grandfather. And his father built the house, and uh, he gave me the tour of the house. We went to his grade school, PS43, James Whitcomb Riley School, and walked around the halls there as he reminisced. We went to Short Ridge High School, uh, where we also reminisced, and or he reminisced. And then uh, we went to the family home in um, Williams Creek, Indiana, which was the home his parents lived in uh, after the Illinois Street house. That's where his mother committed suicide, where Kurt found the body. And uh, he talked about that. And uh, then we went to Lake Maxincucky in Culver, Indiana, northern Indiana. And uh, that's where the entire Vonnegut family, the extended Vonnegut family, aunts, uncles, cousins, all had uh, cabins there around the lake, and that's where they spent their summers. And uh, through up through the Second World War, I guess, and then after the war, when Vonnegut married his childhood sweetheart Jane Cox, they spent their honeymoon there in the old Vonnegut cabin. So it was very nostalgic for him, and it was a, a truly a sentimental journey. And um, you know, I was looking at that footage just the other day because you know I'm now transferring it all to HD because it's a we're in a different era than we were when I when I shot it. And the transfers back then were all to one-inch videotape, which has been outmoded for years and years. That stuff I even had transferred to Beta FP, which nobody really uses anymore. So uh, I dug out the negative again, uh, transferring it to HD. And I was looking at the footage just the other day from the Indianapolis trip, and he's having a good time. He's enjoying himself. He, 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 he was a guy who liked to reminisce, and he was nostalgic about his past. And... Uh, um, you know, he laughed a lot. He, he was having a good time. So it was sort of great to bring him back to life in the uh, uh, editing room the other day. So how do you go from being his friend, making this documentary, to adapting Mother Night for the screen? Well, I remember one of my very early letters to him, um, you know, right after we started to talk about the documentary in 1982. And, and we had quite a lot of correspondence back and forth over the years. Some of it has wound up in that book that came out last year, the year before, the Vonnegut Letters. There's quite a few with me, but um, we were we were faithful correspondents. And in an early letter, soon after the documentary was broached, I started to ask him about the rights to any of his books that could be available um, to be adapted into feature films. And he was um, you know, quite excited about the notion, and a number of his books had already been um, optioned by various people who, you know, would have it, and then the options would expire, and they'd either renew it or not, but not not many of these books were actually getting made. But um, Mother Night, for a long time, was under option by uh, Chardoff and Winkler, who were very successful producers. They did uh, all the early... Um, Scorsese films, Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, possibly Mean Streets. I'm not sure, but uh, they also did, you know, Rocky. Uh, you know, these were big names, and they had uh, they had an option on Mother Night for years and years. Didn't manage to get it made, and then I think there was uh, for a while. I think when I started to get serious about this, now this was years later in the in the late 80s, early 90s. I think there was a young guy 
young at the time who, who had the rights, and just because I think, like me, he was a fan of the book. And Kurt said, I don't think he's going to get it made, so if his rights expire, you can have it. And that's what happened. There was no money exchanged because we were friends. It was basically on a handshake or um, a verbal handshake, if you'll pardon the, uh, the, the mixed metaphor. And um, uh, so he said, it's yours if, if you want it. So I wrote, I wrote the screenplay on spec, meaning it wasn't attached to a studio or uh, anyone who would option it. I was just writing it on my own with the idea that if it came out halfway decent, I'd try to sell it afterwards. Now, the big conspiracy here was that this was something for me to do with my my best friend at the time, and he still is one of my very best friends, is Keith Gordon. And, uh, of course, the big coincidence here is that people may remember Keith Gordon from his acting days, and he played Rodney Dangerfield's son in Back to School, so he's the one who actually opens up the door when Vonnegut is standing there in that film. That actor is Keith Gordon, who later became a director and still a director. And Keith and I were pals, and the idea was that we would find something that we could produce together, and I would write it, and he would direct it. Keith was a Vonnegut fan, not not as obsessive as I was, but Keith was certainly a Vonnegut fan and had read all of his things. And we thought that <clears throat> we thought that Mother Night would be a you know a reasonable film to do on a fairly low budget because the the story was a fairly contained story as far as Vonnegut books go. I mean, there was no time travel. There was you know nothing taking place in outer space. Um, you know, it, it it was a fairly conventional story, although obviously I don't use the word conventional in a in a, a pejorative sense. But it was it was uh, certainly more conventional than a lot of his, you know, uh, weirder things. So, um, you know, we thought we might be able to do it for five million dollars, which um, you know these days is lunch money. Back then, it was uh, still very low budget. But that was that was the big plan. So. Um, I wrote the draft, I wrote the script, and then Keith and I went around trying to raise the money. And this process went on for, oh, geez, four years, maybe five years. I think I wrote the script in 1990, maybe 91. Lots of meetings with people who said that they had money and that they wanted to do it. And, you know, those meetings come and go and the deals come and go. And, um, I, you know, one of the things about writing the script on spec is when you do that, you're not beholden to anyone. In other words, if if I pitched the pitched the film to somebody, and they bought it or optioned it, and I wrote the script, they could say, "Well, we like it, okay, but we need to change the ending. We have to put a happy ending on it." And if they own the material, you have to do it. You either have to do it or you walk away from it, and somebody else comes in and does it. When you write on spec, you can take a finished script around to any potential, you know, financiers or studios and say, here's the script. If you like it and want to make the script and not change it, then we'll make a deal. If you if you want to change it or turn it into something that we don't want to turn it into, well, thank you very much, but we'll move on. And that's what we did. And we did have a few of those meetings with people who said, well, we like the script, but can we jazz it up a bit or do this or that or, or put more sex in it or certainly have our hero, you know, not die at the end. And we would just say, well, no, thank you. We'll find someone who wants to make this. And what finally happened was we we hooked up with Fine Line uh, Features, which was sort of the the art house division, so to speak, of New Line Films. Fine Line doesn't really exist anymore, but um, 
they there were a couple of executive executives there. There was a woman named Ruth Vitali, and there was um, uh, her uh, deputy was uh, a guy named Mark Ordesky, who later found fame. He was the guy who really spearheaded the whole um, Tolkien trilogy, the Lord of the Rings trilogy at, at New Line. And they were fans. Of, they were fans of the script and wanted to do it at the time. They and you know we were still talking about a budget around five million dollars. At the time, they couldn't afford to finance the whole thing. So the idea was that they would give us maybe half the money, and we'd look for the rest of the money elsewhere. So those meetings continued that Keith and I were always trudging off to. And then in the middle of all this, um, uh, Fine Line, or I guess New Line, was purchased by uh, Turner. And suddenly they had an infusion of cash, and we got this miraculous call one day from them saying, looks like we can afford the whole thing. Uh, we, were, we were off to the races, and, and, um, and it was a matter of casting, et cetera. But it was, uh, we were shooting, uh, shot the film in 95, all of it in Montreal, Canada. And the um, film was released in October of 96, I believe. Now, had you done any sort of uh, screen adaptations before this one? No, no, no. This was, this was out of the blue. Um, this was my first, my first screen adaptation. You know, I just, you know, I, I was so familiar with the book. I'll, I'll tell you something, you know, when I was reading all of his books in high school initially, I mean, I loved them all, really, some more than others, but basically I loved it all. And, and, uh, when I read Mother Night, I remember closing the book and thinking and saying to myself, possibly out loud, um, I've got to make a movie about this. I've got to make a movie of this someday. I would have been, uh. I don't know, uh, 17. And then 20 years later, <laughs> I, I did. But it was just, um, you know, it, it, it's, if you're familiar with the book, it's a fairly, um, fairly faithful adaptation. A few things that I added. And, and um, you know, so the big challenge was really just in getting it down to, you know, fighting weight, um, what to use and what to leave out, and then there are a few things you have to change to make it more cinematic. And and um, you know, it's a question of reveals. I mean, Vonnegut is very clever with his reveals in the book. Um, you know, in terms of not knowing the true identity of Kraft, uh, the neighbor played by Alan Arkin, played beautifully by Alan Arkin in the film. Uh, when uh, Helga comes back, first of all, the fact that Helga comes back at all, we presume that she's dead, is a huge reveal. And then when we find out that, in fact, it's not Helga at all, but her younger sister, Rezzy, is just another shock. So Vonnegut is very clever with those reveals in the book. And so there were other reveals that I added and, and how to play those reveals in the film. So you know, a book is not a film. You, you have to turn a book into a film. But again, this, you know, this story was just so good, I felt very little need to mess around with it. And it was really just a matter of, you know, going through the book and deciding what elements of the story had to be cut for time. And then there were some things that we did film. The big confrontation with Bernard B. O'Hare uh, in Campbell's apartment at the end was filmed. And the actor who plays him is a wonderful actor, is David Strathairn. And, um, you know, we just had a film that was running too long, uh, you know, prior to release. And we just had to cut out that. It's a wonderful scene in the book, and it was a wonderful scene as played by Nolte and Strathairn. But it was something that had to, we had to, remo- we had to cut things for time. And that was something that we were able to cut without it creating a domino effect across the board. So reluctantly we did it, but the, um, you know, that's why God invented DVDs is, uh, 
you know, you can include some of, some of that material for that scene as well as a few others that we had to cut are on the DVD. I like some of the stuff that you added too, as far as the uh, the present day or at the time um, stuff, the uh, interactions with some of the guards and um, the whispering from Eichmann and all that. That was great. Yeah, I, I, you know, it all blends together. What, what's funny, and maybe this is a sign of a of a of a healthy collaboration, is. Um, because you mentioned those things to me right now, and I, I, you know, I, I think a lot of that stuff is from the book, although I can't bet on it. And if you've seen the film recently, which I haven't, you're understanding that maybe better than mine. But what, what's funny is that when the film came out, or I guess when I, when I wrote the script, there were things that Kurt complimented me on that he said, wow, that was a really great addition. And I said, Kurt, I didn't add that, but it's from the book. You wrote it. And he said, oh, that was pretty good. And then likewise... There are things in the finished film that I thought were his, that I thought were from the book, and then I finally reread the book years later and discovered that these things that I thought were from the book weren't from the book. They were my additions. So it all, for for both Kurt and myself, it all blended together, which um, you know, which was kind of uh, kind of nice. Well, it's nice you you kept his tone enough that you fooled yourself. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, you know the, the the real thing that was missing. You bring up tone. The real thing that was unfortunate was that um, there is humor in the film, but it's not it doesn't quite have that ironic, um, ironically humorous bite that the book has. And a lot of that is because you know so much of that came from from Campbell's first person narration of the story just these kind of wry little comments and observations that he made and the the script had a lot more of that in it because you know it's easy to write narration to write uh, a voiceover and the script had a lot more voiceover um and when you're writing a script that involves voiceover when you're dealing with whether or not to to use it in the script generally what you do is you put it in because there's no cost to it really you've got your actor in our case mcnulty in the sound booth recording voiceover anyway so when in doubt just put it in the script and record it um and then you can use it or not and a lot of that got cut out and i found you know the unfortunate side effect of that is that it did um it did take away some of that ironic humor because so much of that was in the first person telling of the story but then i found other places to to work in some things and some jokes and, and, and some of that still exists but i think that's probably the biggest tonal shift from the book to the movie is, is losing some of campbell's own voice in it or vonnegut's voice i should say was this the first narrative film that you worked on because i know you've done a lot of narrative since then and mostly documentary prior to that my feature career has not been that prolific now of course uh mother night i wrote and produced but didn't direct keith gordon directed it uh there's a picture i did a few years ago a comedy that i directed but didn't write called how to lose friends and alienate people which nobody saw in the in the united states maybe on dvd or on cable they saw but no nobody nobody went to the theaters to see it. it did very well in england um it was a british lead in the film but um of course, narrative-wise on TV, subsequently I've done a lot more. I had all those years on Curb Your Enthusiasm, and I just did a, um, a series in England for British television for Sky TV, uh, which airs in May, called Mr. Sloan with Nick Frost. So I've had much more narrative experience now. But as far as um, uh, writing, um, yeah, this was, this was really the, the first one. Prior to that, it had all been 
it had all been documentaries. How was that uh, working relationship between you and uh, Keith Gordon on this one? Oh, it was a dream. I mean, there's nothing better than working with your friends. You know, we, we really saw eye to eye on, on, on so many things and, uh, you know, mostly everything. And if one of us felt there was a, a problem that had to be solved, generally the other one agreed. And um, it's just great. You know, my, my life on that film, once, you know, the, the hell of finishing the screenplay is behind you, for me it was all, I don't want to say all fun and games. I mean, I was involved every step in the way with the casting and I was on the set every single day. But, you know, as a writer uh, and as a producer, you're on the set every day. <clears throat> I was on the set every day. And the script was written, so I was there to sort of support Keith and to help problem solve. And if something did come up or, you know, maybe a little revision was needed, I was there for that. But otherwise, I was just there hanging out and having a great time. And, you know, movie sets are, are wonderful if you've got great people, if no one's being a jerk. And, you know, actors are interesting people and, and uh, the men and women, you know, your crew, are, you know, have interesting jobs and, you know, it's just fun to, to hang out. And uh, here I was in Montreal, you know, with my best friend making a movie uh, based on a script, um, um, or a movie from a script based on a book by my favorite author. And, and um, I was just, you know, very happy and proud about the whole thing. And then, of course, Vonnegut himself came up for a couple of days, came up to Montreal and did that uh, memorable cameo in the film. I think we credit him as sad man on the street uh, during the scene when, when Nolte as Campbell is just frozen on the street because he has no place to go and no motivation to even take a step. And he, he stands in that one spot for hours as people are just walking by. And one of the people who walks by in slow motion and gives him a, uh, a look is uh, Vonnegut. So, uh, he had a he had a he had a great time too. So it was it was you know nothing but uh, it was a pure pleasure. How was it? And it, obviously, you, you kind of just answered it by saying everything was pure pleasure. But I still want to ask this anyway. What was it like for you seeing Nick Nolte, Alan Arkin? I mean, this is just an amazing cast that that this film has. Was it like seeing those guys saying your lines that you wrote? Um, well, it's, it's thrilling. It's thrilling. And, um, you know, again, it really goes back to Kurt. There, to a great degree, there's, there's some lines that, that Kurt wrote, but, um, yeah, to see the whole thing come together is, is, uh, just a great experience. And when Kurt came to the set that day, we sort of talked about that is here. I, I think the book was written in 1961 and here we were filming in 95 so that's what thirty, you know, almost thirty-five years later, and you know, thirty-five years ago, he was sitting at his typewriter just banging out words, and then four years earlier, I was sitting at my typewriter, I guess my computer, banging out you know, words, you know, letters on a page, and um, you know, he could have written, uh, you know, uh, Howard Campbell. Uh, Steps outside, steps outside of his uh, brownstone in Greenwich Village and walks down the street to pick up a newspaper. And I write that in my script. And next thing you know, there's hundreds of people constructing you know, a street in Greenwich Village and a front door and painting it and, and bricks. And, uh, or, you know, you're on a location and you, you, you've got uh, extras and period clothes and wardrobe and, and vintage cars driving by and all these people with lights and cameras just because you, you put a few letters on a page. It's the process of watching it take on 
three dimensions and, and taking on human faces and, and voices is, is thrilling and, of course, very costly. Now, I mean, Kurtz talked about the difference between writing movies and, or rather, writing novels and uh, writing of any kind uh, versus movies. Is He says, you know, it's, it's nothing. It's, it's the cost of, of paper, basically. And, uh, you know, in his case, uh, ribbons on his typewriter. Um, and, you know, it's nothing. And you, could, you can, you know, bring about the end of the world uh, for pennies. You know, but you bring, up, you bring about the end of the world in a movie, uh, you know, it gets a little costly. So that, that was his joy, is being able to, to write whatever he wants and to have people travel around in time and in space, and it costs nothing but uh, try, to, try to do that in front of the camera, and uh, it's a pretty hefty price tag. If you were given the opportunity to adapt anything else of Vonnegut's, what would you choose? Well, as much of a fan of his work as I am, I'm the first to admit that not all of his books would, uh, you know, should be made into movies. The two that I think are probably more than two, if I really stop and, and, and think about it, but um, the two that I always thought would make great movies are Sirens of Titan and, and Cat's Cradle. And in fact, after Mother Night, um, Kurt uh, gave me the rights to Sirens of Titan, uh, the rights to that phone were the rights to that film were owned for years by Jerry Garcia. Um, yes, that Jerry Garcia, the Grateful Dead, was a big Vonnegut nut, and he had it for years and years, and um, never got it made. And whenever I would ask Kurt about the rights to Signs of Titan, it was always the same thing. Well, Jerry Garcia's got it, and then sometime after after Garcia did become a member of the Grateful Dead and in the other context. So I would inquire about the rights to Sirens of Titan now and again, and the answer was always the same, was that Jerry Garcia still had it. And sometime after Garcia died, it occurred to me that, I mean, I didn't know if that affected the rights situation, so I asked Kurt, and he said, well, let me look into it. And then he got back to me and says, well, it winds up he could have gotten the rights back a long time ago because the deal with Garcia was that if he hadn't made the film by a certain time, which had long since expired, um, that Kirk would get the rights back. So much like Mother Night, he said to me, it's yours if you want it. So I, I did an adaptation of Sirens of Titan. was never able to get it off the ground. It, um, the problem with the Sirens of Titan is that it's really got the heart of an independent film, but the budget of a big Hollywood studio movie. Now, that is an expensive film to make, and it's not your typical science fiction um, in that it's, you know, it's in some ways about a very human emotional story. I mean, not that science fiction never is, but it, it just it doesn't really have the um, sort of the elements of typical kind of successful big-budget sci-fi drama. I still think it would be um, uh, you know, a wonderful film. Uh, if, if there was a way to do it cheaply, you could maybe get it made, but I don't think there's any way to get it done cheaply. So, um, you know, maybe, maybe to animate it. Not that animation is so cheap now, but uh, after years and years of uh, taking Sirens of Titan around and not finding any buyers, then I got a letter from, uh, a phone call from uh, Kurt's lawyer, Donald Farber at some point saying that um, he had somebody who was interested in optioning the rights and he was going to let him do it because I hadn't been able to get it off the ground. I said, well, that's fair. And, you know, that producer never got it made. I mean, I think if anyone was going to be able to get it made, I would have been able to get it made um, because I'd been to everybody with it and uh, just didn't find any takers. Uh, Cat's Cradle I don't, I don't know if it's still the case, but Cat's Cradle, uh, the rights were owned for a while by 
Leonardo DiCaprio's father, George DiCaprio, who is sort of, I guess, runs uh, Leonardo's uh, company, Appian Way Films, and and Leo's dad, I call him Leo like we're friends, I've never, I've met him, but we're not, we don't hang out. Um, uh, but his dad is an old hippie who loved Vonnegut, was a big Vonnegut nut. I think DiCaprio's company may have the rights to both Cat's Cradle and Sirens, if I can think of it, but they're, they're just hard films to get anybody to uh, write a check for their budget. I guess, kind of departing a little bit from Mother Night, I wanted to ask you uh, briefly about your uh, some of your documentary work. Obviously, you said that you were a big fan of the Marx Brothers when you were growing up. How did you get involved with the W.C. Fields and the Lenny Bruce and the the Woody Allen? I mean, these are really some of the masters of comedy that you're covering over the years here. Well, those were all the people who were seminal influences on me uh, when my brain was much more sponge-like and um, you know ready to absorb these kinds of influences. I was you know, from the time I was a kid, I always loved comedy. I loved stand-up comedy, what I consider to be good stand-up comedy, not all of it. Um, I loved, you know, movie comedies. I discovered the Marx Brothers when I was in junior high school. And that was the big aha moment that sort of changed my life. Um, I'm not exaggerating. I saw Duck Soup on TV one night, and nothing was the same after that. So, you know, I refer to them as sort of the gateway drug that led to harder things like W.C. Fields and Laurel and Hardy and Chaplin and Keaton and, you know, going back to the silence. But I became a big fan of that golden age of film comedy. So in, in junior high and high school, when most kids my age were idolizing rock stars, I did some of that too, and uh, sports figures, you know, athletes, um, I was just crazy about the Marx Brothers and, and uh, these old film comedians. So, um, and likewise, you know, Lenny Bruce, whom I would do a documentary on, I, I must have seen the Bob Fosse film with Lenny Bruce uh, called Lenny, because I would have been in high school when that came out. And that probably got me started on him, so of course I had to go out and get every Lenny Bruce record and read everything I could on him. Uh, with Woody Allen, Take the Money and Run came out when I was nine. There's nothing about that movie that a nine-year-old can't appreciate. So I loved that film as a kid, and then the next one was Bananas and you know, Sleeper and Love Enough. So I just grew up watching all those movies. So, so all of these subjects that I've covered in my documentaries are just you know people I grew up admiring, and you know, fortunately for all of them, you know, they had no documentaries. You know, when I finished the Marx Brothers film. As I said, I wrote that letter to Vonnegut, met with him, but, you know, financing, you know, didn't really show up right away. But soon after, I guess a couple of years after the Marx Brothers film, I wound up pitching and selling a special to HBO called The Great Stand-Ups on the History of Stand-Up Comedy from Vaudeville to the then-present, 1984. And then... Um, I was not. I was a W.C. Fields fan, but not a Fields aficionado the way I was with the Marx Brothers. Uh, but a fellow named Joe Adamson, who's a film historian and an author, um, who worked with me on the Marx Brothers film in '85, I guess, asked about, uh, you know, basically said, "Why don't we do one on W.C. Fields?" And I said, "Great." So that one was more sort of learning on the job about W.C. Fields, and I became a huge fan um, of his at the time. And of course, you know, Vonnegut and I were already friendly by this time, so Vonnegut was loving these films of mine because one of the things we had in common was a love for old comedy. Of course, he grew up with this stuff. You know, I came upon it retroactively. 
but uh, oh, he loved the W.C. Fields film, and uh, he came to a screening I had of the Lenny Bruce film in New York, and uh, uh, you know, just loved that I was making these films. I tried to make one on uh, Laurel and Hardy, but the right situation got very, very complicated, and he was really hoping I would get that made because you know, Laurel and Hardy were his big heroes. So, uh, but that you know, that's all it is. My my my, my documentaries have all been on subjects that. Um, important to me you know it's sort of like when i was a kid if you know let's say a new record came out by a group that i like i don't know i must have been about 11 or 12 or so when uh when the jethro toll album passion play came out and i remember you know going to the record store and being very excited and bringing that home and playing it and loving it and did what we all did back then is you would call up your friends and you'd have them come over, and you'd say, you got to listen to this record, it's great. And you'd put it on, and you'd sit there, and you'd all listen to it, and you'd all dig it, and you'd talk about you know, a guitar riff that you loved or how great these lyrics are or whatever. And there was a great joy in sharing that experience with your friends, you know, because you loved somebody's work, and I realized that's still what I'm doing with my documentaries. Instead of bringing friends over, I sort of send it out into the world and go, look at, these, look at the March Brothers. Aren't they great? Don't you love this? Isn't Groucho funny? Isn't Harpo great when he gives the woman his leg? And, you know, uh, you know isn't, isn't Love and Death a funny film? You know, this, or Lenny Bruce, wasn't he great? And that's what I'm doing with, with Vonnegut now, with the Vonnegut documentary. But it's just a way of um, sort of sending out a very... Um, a very public thank you letter, a very public love letter to these people whose work I've admired so much. Well, I can't wait to see the Vonnegut documentary. Yeah, you and a lot of people, including myself. It sort of evolved, you know, the fact that we had this friendship that grew over the course of the film, which just took, you know, went on for decades. Um, it started to present a bit of a conflict because the idea was that I'd make a you know fairly conventional sort of PBS-style documentary on an author. And um, as we spent more time and became closer, it started to feel a little difficult to do that and to pass it off as just an objective you know, filmmaker by a disinterested, well, maybe not disinterested third party, but uh, you know, by an objective filmmaker. So I, and that was sort of hanging me up because this was now becoming a film about a friend of mine. So Jerry Klinkowitz, who's a Vonnegut scholar, and Vonnegut fans know he's written a number of wonderful books about Vonnegut, he said, well, you've got to disclose that. It's got to be your voice narrating the film. And all that stuff needs to go into the film about how your friendship grew over the course of, of doing it and why it took so long to make it. And, you know, he pointed out to me that uh, in Breakfast of Champions, uh, Vonnegut enters the book and talks to Kilgore Trout. And he says, that's what you've got to do now. You've got to enter the story and and talk about your characters. And, and then when Timequake came out in 97, Timequake was a novel, but it was also a book about Kurt trying to write the novel and his struggles with it, because Timequake was a book that had eluded him for years. I remember Kurt and I having conversations and correspondence over a period of years, and I'd say, how's the book coming? And he'd say, ah, it's, it's not. I'm going to let it sit for a while. And then he'd write and say he was picking it up again. Well, that book was Timequake. And when Timequake came out, um, you know, it was half the book that he intended to write and half a book about his struggles to write the book. And, and Klinkowitz said that's where you have to take your cue. So, so the film now, I've brought in another documentary filmmaker, a guy named Don Argett, who's a terrific documentary filmmaker. And he, in essence, is following me around now that the film has been resuscitated doing a documentary of sorts about me making the film and about my relationship with Vonnegut, and then that is being woven into the film itself. 
So it's a very kind of meta look at um, uh, not only it's not only a documentary on Vonnegut, it's a documentary about making the very film that you're watching and why it, why it took 30 plus years. And you know, you see pictures of me when I st- first started working with Kurt, and I'm a kid. And now I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm going to be able to get the free dinner at Denny's in a couple of years. So. It's like watching Jodorowsky's Dune documentary and Jodorowsky's Dune film all at the same yeah, time. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or, or as I referred to it the other day, is we're embarking on the world's most expensive uh, uh, director's DVD commentary. Done, <laughs> you know. like the, Built into the film itself. Yeah, exactly. Instead of... Uh, Sort of as a, a, a separate track as bonus material. Hey, um, do you want to talk about the uh, the casting of Nolte on Mother Night at all? Because that was kind of an interesting story. Yeah, that'd be great. I'd love to hear yeah. it. When Keith and I first set about to um, find somebody to play Campbell, one of the first actors that we had in mind was uh, Nick Nolte, uh, who at the time was really seemed unattainable because he was really at the top of his game and, and I mean he remains to this day a brilliant actor but he was he was really hot back then he had just come off of um, Prince of Tides for which he had a, he received an Oscar nomination uh, with Barbara Streisand and the Scorsese film Cape Fear and he was you know hot as can be so you know this again this was a low budget film but we thought Nolte might be great for it that he'd have the kind of vulnerability and uh, just his physicality worked, and we felt, you know, at the time that we could sort of age him up and age him down as needed. And he was just a great actor. So we approached his agent at the time, and we said, we'd like Nick to do this film. And his agent got back to us and said, look, guys, he's not going to do a low-budget film for a cut rate. He can sort of do whatever he wants. Now, I don't mean his agent was being that arrogant about it, but that was true. Why would he do a low-budget film? So we started to go out to other actors and had a few people who were who really liked it, but uh, either we weren't able to raise the money on their names or their schedules changed by the time we were ready to go. They weren't available any longer. I know for the longest time we had Anthony Hopkins on, who would have been very different but really terrific. And now he had just come off of um, Silence of the Lambs, so he was also as hot as can be, but he loved the script. And, you know, by the time finally this Turner money came in and we were able to finance it, he was, he was long gone. So in the middle of all this, Keith, who had been an actor, was still acting a little bit, um, got a call from his agent asking if he wanted to do uh, one day's work on this feature film called I Love Trouble. And, uh, and the film starred Julia Roberts and Nick Nolte. Yeah, I'll, I'll do it if you can get me on a set with Nick Nolte. Get me a scene with Nick Nolte. The agent said, well, why is that important? And Keith said, well, never mind. <laughs> and so he did. Keith took the part. It was literally one day. It was a one-line walk-on, maybe two lines. But it was a scene with Nick, and um, he gave him a script on the set. He said, sorry to do this, to go around your agent, but um, you know, desperate times call for desperate, desperate measures. And read this, please. And... Um, Nick called two days later. He said, this is my next film. And uh, we told him, we said, you know, we've been to your agent, but uh, your agent thought you were unlikely to do something, you know, in this budget range. And and Nick said, well, my agent works for me. I don't work for him. I don't do what I want. And that was that. And we got the guy that we had originally been to. By this time, I don't know, it was probably a year. Maybe more had gone by. But um, we got him. And then the rest of the casting just fell into place. It was a real hunt for um, Helga, 
we auditioned a lot of wonderful actresses. We thought Cheryl Lee, who was best known at the time for her role as Laura Palmer in Twin Peaks and the, and the Twin Peaks movie Fire, Firewalk with me. She did a great audition. And she was hired. We, and then we started to get this dream cast. I mean, we just thought John Goodman would be amazing for Wharton. And lo and behold, we got him. And then uh, to get Alan Arkin for Kraft was just incredible. And little Kirsten Dunst at the time, I guess she was 12, maybe 13, um, had just made a big splash with the uh, interview with the vampire, which put her on the map. We thought she would be good for the young Resi, and we got her. So, and, and a lot of wonderful supporting actors. So it was, it was really, as well as um, you know, some some unknowns. But uh, the casting came together quite nicely, and every frame of the film was shot in Montreal. Montreal subbed for, um, you know, pre-war Berlin and wartime Berlin, post-war Berlin. <laughs> Uh, Greenwich Village, New York in the early 60s. The, the prison that we use that I think in the film I say is in, um, I can't remember, Jerusalem or Tel Aviv or someplace in any event, that prison was up in Montreal. That was an abandoned prison. It was fortunate for us. So every frame of the film was shot in, in Montreal. And at the time, just the value of the dollar against the Canadian dollar was very beneficial to us as far as stretching our, 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 our dollars up there. And, and Keith was very good at... Um, you know, if you wanted to shoot this version of the scene and was told, well, we don't have m- enough money to do that, he'd say, all right, well, then let's shoot this version of the scene, which will be a little smaller, and we won't see quite as much of the street, and, uh, you know, we'll just keep the camera pointed here so that we don't have to change out the rest of the street. He, you know, he was just very good and, and, and uh, not precious about, uh, you know, his vision with the capital V where he would insist on, you know, getting everything done to his... Uh, specifications, he would just adjust to what the budget could handle, which is a very important thing for a uh, director on a budget to be able to do. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I love the use of the black and white for the current day and then the color for the past. Yeah, we reversed the convention because normally it's present day is in color and then when you have a flashback, it's black and white to let you know it's a flashback. But we thought that Howard's current life was so dreary in prison that it was best represented as black and white. And in this odd way, his, his glory days were back uh, in Germany, you know, when he was a beloved playwright and uh, hanging out with a lot of uh, big shot uh, Nazis and going to parties and receptions and falling in love with this beautiful young actress. Those were his glory days. So the past was color and the present day was black and white. I was wondering, could you tell me anything about the parking ticket? Yeah, the, the parking ticket, it's funny because that's another project that involved Keith. Is uh, A mutual friend of ours named George Beckerman wrote um, a very funny script, which he actually called In Deep. And uh, it was about a guy who gets a parking ticket undeservedly, fights it, and his legal problems in fighting this ticket snowball and snowball and snowball until he winds up on death row at the end of the movie. And it was a funny script, and George wrote it, and Keith was going to direct it, and everything was set up. This was years ago. I'm talking, dear God, uh, more than 20 years ago. And uh, it was cast, and the financing fell through at the last minute. It all fell apart. Years went by. I was looking for something to do, and, and uh, uh, George said that he would love to have me direct because I was directing, and I was directing Curb. And um, so then I did a rewrite with George. And we ran around all over the place trying to get this thing made and couldn't get it made. And so I stayed attached to it, but I got a call from, this is really full circle, a mutual friend of Keith's and mine, a guy named Mark Romanek, who collaborated with Keith on a little-known film called Static. Mark later went on to direct the one-hour photo with Robin Williams and 
um, some other you know really wonderful films. And so Mark found the script and said to me, "Hey, are you still attached to direct this?" I said, "Well, technically yes, but I haven't been able to get it made. And if you've got a means to do it, great." And so um, Mark took the script to uh, Ben Stiller, who's a friend of his, and uh, I'd actually been to Ben myself. A few years earlier when I directed him on Kirby Enthusiasm, I gave him the script, but he never got around to reading it, but he, he read it when Mark gave it to him and wanted to do it. So it got set up as a picture for Mark to direct. I was going to be an executive producer. It was set up at um, uh, Red Hour Films, which is Stiller's company. Brought in another writer, a very good writer named Steve Conrad, to sort of rethink the script and rewrite it. It got retitled the parking lot, the parking ticket, but oh, like a lot of great scripts, it's sitting there waiting for... Um, somebody's come along and, and write a check. I, I, I clearly got that off of my IMDb page. It sits there on my IMDb page. That's pretty much where, where the project lives these days, is on the Internet, but not, not in the tangible world of reality, perhaps someday. If there's any lesson from the Vonnegut film going into year 32 and looking now like it has a decent chance of actually being made in the next year, then I guess there's, there's hope for all of us and all of our projects. Is that kind of your full-time gig right now? Uh, no, I'm actually... Um, you can never make a documentary a full-time gig until you're really in the thick of it. and, and, and yeah, uh, unless you're Errol Morris or something. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Those, those guys who are Morgan Spurlock. I mean, I met Morgan soon after he did Supersize Me, and we became friendly, and, you know, the man's in industry now. You know, there's some people who know how to do that. No, I'm actually writing a script right now. It's my first commissioned um, script in many, many years. And it is about, uh, I don't know if you're old enough to remember, the, the Cola Wars of the 1980s when Pepsi and Coke both really went head-to-head. And, and uh, Coke uh, was losing some of the market share to Pepsi, and Coke took their famous secret formula that had worked perfectly well for 100 years and decided to redo the formula and come out with the new Coke, which was, which was roundly rejected by every, every red-blooded American. And then they had to backpedal and, and bring back the old Coke and eventually phase out the new Coke. But it's kind of a boardroom comedy about uh, Coke and Pepsi going head-to-head. Really wonderful source material, so I'm writing that for a producer right now. And um, the series I just did for Sky, Mr. Sloan, they're wanting a, a second season. And um, I'll give some thoughts soon as to whether or not I want to write a second season and what I would do with the second season. And, um, you know, always I've got my spec script that I'm writing. I've got... Um, a deal that is about to close with um, Fox Studios, the television division, to write a pilot for them. So, you know, and uh, Vonnegut on top of it all. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it's funny. I was just, uh, we are building a new website, and somebody had mentioned calling the old website. I work at the power company here in Detroit. They had mentioned calling the old website the, the classic version, and that there are people that still have an aversion to the word classic <laughs> after Coke Classic. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It's interesting, too, because it winds up that it wasn't rejected really because of taste, although a lot of people said that they couldn't stand the taste. But in blind taste tests, it actually did score better than regular Coke. But what they couldn't research, what they had no empirical evidence of, was how attached people were to Coke as part of the American fabric. You know, my father gave me my first Coke at a baseball game. And, you know, we had Coke during the war, and, you know, we had Coke at a wedding, you know, in 1943. I mean, that kind of thing. People just didn't want it messed with. And people were really outraged. But, but then finally, when, when people were up in arms about the new Coke and they had to bring back the old Coke, you know, people were now sort of 
in touch with how much they appreciated old Coke, and then it sold much better than it ever did before. So, you know, the execs at Coca-Cola kind of were starting to do that Pee Wee Herman thing, you know, uh, yeah, I meant to do that, you know, as though that was their plan all along. And uh, But it's just funny, I mean, the way the executives go at it, you'd think they were curing cancer, bringing about world peace, and all they're doing really is selling sugar water for the unwashed masses. But um, it is an interesting kind of story. Yeah. Well, I should, tell, I should mention one other thing, by the way. One of the actors who read the Mother Night script and really wanted to play the part of Campbell, but we, by this time we, we had multi, was Jeff Bridges, who also would have been wonderful. But because he liked my writing so much, he asked me to adapt a novel that he had just optioned, a young adult novel called The Giver by Lois Lowry. So I did an adaptation of this. This is now going back to like 95, 96. I did two drafts of it, and, you know, we could never get it made. Jeff and I later worked together on my future How to Lose Friends and Alienate People. But in any event, we always talked about The Giver, and too bad we never got it made. Well, it finally got made this year uh, with Jeff playing the title role of, of, of The Giver. It was made by the Weinstein Company. And um, it's going to come out in August, and it went through a lot, of, a lot more writers, and uh, probably half a dozen writers came and went. And uh, so in the publicity, they're, they're, they've listed another writer as the writer, <clears throat> but um, they don't really get to say <laughs> so much as the Writers Guild gets to say. So that's going through an arbitration, or will soon be going through an arbitration as we speak, and um, there's every possibility that I'll wind up with uh, you know, a co-writing credit on that. So, so that's interesting because this is something I wrote you know, like 18 years ago, and I can't say that I've forgotten about it because I haven't, but it, it's interesting. Again, these lessons and how long these things take, that I wrote the script 18 years ago, and it's just now coming out, and hopefully we'll, we'll have my, my name on it. Um, by the way, part of the arbitration process, too, is that the producers of the film have to send a copy of the shooting script to all the other writers. And they did, and I read it. I said, well, this is interesting, because you know half of my script was based on the book, and the other half with stuff I embellished because without going into it, the nature of the story sort of stays with one point of view and I had to sort of give the point of view of what was going on with these other characters and that I made up out of whole cloth and that's all in the, in the, in the shooting script. So God, God bless the Writers Guild. I've got one more question for you, which might be kind of a dumb one. Were you ever on the Dog Whisperer? Yeah, yeah, that was me and my wife, and that was Jake. Okay. Yeah, that's when Jake was, well, he wasn't a pup, but he was pretty young. Jake, like me, he's an old man now. We're both uh, gray around the muzzle. And uh, Jake is 14 now, and he's been slowed down a bit with some arthritis. In fact, right now, uh, my wife is with him um, doing, uh, uh, he's getting acupuncture. He gets acupuncture couple times a month. He gets swim therapy every week. He's actually doing great, really. He just can't run and jump. He's not spring-loaded the way he used to be. But yeah, that was that was us. That was us. Yeah. And that's, that's the point. I, I, when I saw the episode, I was like, I wonder if that's the same guy. And then listening to your voice and everything, I'm like, it sounds really familiar. Yeah, that was me. I'm standing right now in the same room where we, we, where we sat and did that interview. But... Um, was I going to say, yeah, that's another thing that Vonnegut and I have in common is that we've both been known to, you know, like dogs more than we like human beings in many cases. You know, certainly there are big exceptions. But that other line of Vonnegut that I love so much, which is true of me, he says that, you know, his favorite thing in the world is to just be on the floor, you know, wrestling with a dog and just kind of getting down with the dog and rolling around and playing. And he says, he says the dog always gets tired of it before he does. 
<laughs> it's happened to me where I've had my dog say, "Okay, yeah, I get the idea. Okay, Dad, thanks. Yeah, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Are you good? I'm, I'm good. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go. You, you, you get a life." <laughs> yeah, that was good. Well, hey, thank you so much for your time today. This has been wonderful. Oh, good. back and we're talking about mother night with director and co-producer keith gordon keith you know i i just wanted to ask you one thing when we've got nick nolte going down the stairs to meet helga uh after he hasn't seen her for all this time and who is actually um resi the younger sister you've got church bells going off and it, and they go off in sets of three is are were you telegraphing that it's not actually the kingdom of two that we're about to experience again or was that just a a fluke i wish i was as smart as you just gave me credit for being <laughs> no I, I actually that those church bells are actually part of the piece of music that we use there it, it's a piece by avro Peart, a, a a wonderful composer and those church bells were part of that piece of music, and and so I loved how that music, which is kind of sad and yet minimalist and and very emotional without being emotional in an obvious way, I loved how that worked over the scene. But I can't say that I went as far as to think about the number of bells in terms of the nation of two. It's it's it's. I wish that my brain worked worked that detailed. Um, and if I was a smarter guy, I probably would have taken credit for it and just said, yes, of course I was thinking that. But, you know, I always, I'm always a little suspicious when filmmakers are interviewed and they claim to have known everything about everything in advance. I, I'm a great believer that a lot of filmmaking, like, like all art, is happy accidents. And, you know, I mean, what you're saying is a really interesting insight, but it certainly wasn't an intentional one. That doesn't mean it doesn't have a validity. Um, you know, I mean, I think a lot of things that happen, you, you may not be aware of when you're doing them, but, you know, but who knows on subconscious levels or whatever, if those things are part of it. But, uh, yeah, I wish you could claim to be that smart, man. <laughs> we'll give you credit for it. It's all right. <laughs> The music was actually something that was it was funny because it was such non traditional music too for a World War Two movie, you know. I mean we you know, we use these kind of Eastern European pieces of music and they're very based in drones and they're you know, very much not what was normal, but for somehow it was just one of those things that again you we just started experimenting with music in the editing room and I was actually listening to some of this music while we were shooting, just to have music playing and I just thought, God, for some reason there's something in, in Evo Parrot's writing that captures this kind of sadness but not obvious sadness and not on the nose sadness and not kind of something a little tweaked about it as well and 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 so we started playing with it in editing jay rabinowitz is an amazing editor and i started putting pieces of it on and just going damn this works um and we ended up with a with a much less traditional score than one might have expected and probably i've expected i mean but you start that's the, the great thing about music and films is you don't always end up where you think you're going to and, and sometimes those are great discoveries that really um, can add whole other lay- layers to things. Yeah, I was really surprised when I was tracking down some of the songs, um, just how eclectic they were. Just so many different composers, so many different eras, and just you know, it, it was um, kind of neat to hear them separate. But yeah, you're right; they really work well with the images that are going on. And that's the fun thing is, is, is I think with music, when, I mean, one of my very favorite parts of filmmaking period is when you're in the editing room and trying different music on different scenes and, and what a huge impact it has. I mean, it's, it's funny because the audience only sees it with the piece of music that's finally there, but, 
but you can take the same scene and put 20 different pieces of music on it, and you really end up with 20 different scenes. I mean, uh, it's something that never, somebody who's never been in the editing room hasn't had the chance to experience, but it is remarkable, you know, how a different piece of music makes a scene have a different tilt and how some pieces of music are just awful, and they just and there's a thing you might have thought would be the perfect thing, and somehow they just don't work at all, and they're a disaster. And something else where you're like, I don't know, this is kind of weird, and you actually see it with the image, and, and something comes just to life. It's really, it's really a, a fun part of the process, because you're in the editing room, you can just try stuff, and you know, if, we, if you want to put Jimi Hendrix over a World War II movie, you drop it in there, and you see what it does, and, and if it doesn't work, fine, but what if it does work? And so, you know, we, we had a, a great time time finding that music but it was it was music i was thinking about a little bit while we were shooting just because i was listening to it back at the hotel room and i found it kind of giving me the feeling that i wanted the film to have and and a lot of times with music that's to me the more important thing a lot of my films don't have music that's that's exactly quote-unquote right you know music often in my movies has been anachronistic to the situation or the time or the but but to me that's sort of interesting it's to not put on the music that just does exactly what you'd expect it to do um and and you know i i I was really happy with the the mix of stuff we were able to get and again that we were able to get to avo parrot who lives in estonia or somewhere i mean it was not easy getting them and getting his permission and you know it was um and he like basically doesn't have a phone and it was a whole process of you know getting somebody to say yes i mean you can't just stick a piece of music on your movie and say i'm using it you have to get the composer's approval and the the record company is okay and and we had to go to everybody and say we don't have a lot of money because this film was made on a big budget so we couldn't afford the kind of you know fees that normally you pay for this kind of stuff so we were very lucky in able being able to get the music that we wanted how important to a movie do you think is a title well you know it's I mean, it's funny because a lot of people have asked like what Mother Night even means, and and, and Kurt sort of explains it in in, in the preface, and I, and I I can't remember all the it, it was it came out of Goethe's Faust, and the idea of night as mother, and and both the dark side and, and you know and the warm side of that happening existing simultaneously. Um, so you know, but you know, of course, for the film from a novel that sold over a million copies, having the, the title was very important among other things, just because people would know what it is. And we ran into a very strange thing where Albert Brooks had just made his film Mother, and there was, you know, there's a whole thing about the legality of titles and, you know, how much you can copyright titles and you can't. And we actually were starting to look like we were going to face a challenge on using the title of the book because uh, someone around Brooks's film Mother didn't want us, didn't want Mother Night coming out anywhere near the same time. And it was a very bizarre concept to think, okay, here's this novel that's been around for a long, long time, and yet somebody's telling us we can't use the title. Um, and, you know, luckily in the end, you know, cooler heads prevailed and everybody was all right with it. And we were able to keep the book's title, but it was very perverse to like think of, okay, well, what are we going to call it? And the nice, nice oxy hangs himself or, uh, you know, it, it's like, you know, it, because if it, people read it and any other title wouldn't have the same resonance because it, it's, people knew it as that. Um, but that's all, you know, look, permission from Universal Films to use the character of Howard Campbell because in the film that Universal made of, of uh, Slaughterhouse Five, which is a wonderful film, I, I really think it's a great adaptation of that novel, um, that character of Howard Campbell appears very briefly. So technically, Universal had ownership of that character in film, and we had to go to Universal and sort of beg and plead to let them use that character because even though it's a completely different book, the way Kurt writes, he often has characters who are his main character in one book, show up in another book in a little way. And he had done that in Slaughterhouse-Five. And Howard Campbell, who he'd written about years earlier in Mother Night, shows up in Slaughterhouse-Five. And so we, we couldn't have made the movie if, if Universal hadn't given us permission to use that character. Um, and so I, I sort of you know feel grateful to them because 
there was a moment that we kind of our fates were hung in their balance, and you know they could have been really corporate and mean about it, but instead they were they were in the end ultimately quite gracious. You were talking about the titles. Did they ever kick around some possible titles to you if you couldn't use it? I, I don't remember those discussions. Well, they probably would have been somewhere between hysterically funny and really depressing. Uh, I'm sure, knowing Bob and me, we but mostly came up with ribald and 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 or utterly absurd titles because there's nothing that you know we never thought we would seriously have to change the title. We just we just refused to believe it was going to come down to that. Um, you know, so uh, we probably laughed about it, but I don't think we ever brainstormed too seriously because uh, had that disaster happened, we would have had to cross that bridge, but. You know, I mean, again, how do you take a book that sold over a million copies and been published all over the world and, like, stick another title on it? It just would have been awful. So I don't think we let ourselves even go there particularly. And also with it, with the release of the film, how was it to try and, you know, with with the marketing team, you know, what do we got here? How are we going to get people to come see this? What was the discussion like around it that way? Well, it was, you know, I mean, I mean, the, 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 you know, both the good and the bad thing about being with Fine Line is that, you know, they were like this very small offshoot of, of, of New Line and, and, you know, they, they didn't tend to spend a lot of money on movies and didn't create big marketing campaigns, but on the other hand, they were very artistically free and, and really supported us in making our vision. I mean, we never had like test screen the movie, which can, can you imagine test screening this movie for an audience and getting those cards back of, you know, did I like the main character and all those like, pointless things that you go through and you know they never made us go through that process and they were like look this film is what this film is and people will like it or they won't you know but but we're not going to shy away from what the movie is um and so they were great on that level and they and they kept us very involved there were all sorts of poster ideas and all that and i was i was pretty happy with 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 what they came up with as a campaign what was sort of frustrating in terms of the release of the movie was that and I understood their logic, but they released it in late October um, because they felt like maybe you know, Nick could get an Oscar nomination. But the problem was, and, and, and yes, it is that caliber of performance, but it put us up against every huge studio movie that was coming out for Oscar consideration at that time of year. I think Bob and I both had wanted to see it as counter-programming, maybe in the summer or late spring or sometime when there wasn't a lot of good stuff around for grown-ups to go see. And instead, you know, we opened the same weekend as like 12 other movies and like they all had a much higher profile and, you know, we had you know, all, finally I could afford was this little ad in the paper, you know, and everything else was like two-page ads. And so the film got a little bit lost and that was that was sad and frustrating. I mean, even though in a way it was it was very nice that they thought that highly of the film and particularly of Nick's performance, but you know, the problem with courting awards at that time of year is that if you're not right in the spotlight, you're sort of dead. And so it was very frustrating for us because we just had no chance of competing at all. Um, you know, and, and the other thing that was surprising to us was we thought we were going to get like this really critically divided reaction. We thought we, people were going to like be violent about the film, either either loving it or hating it. And we didn't get that. We got a lot of really nice reviews, but we didn't get the damning, and we didn't get the this is the best film ever made. You know, we got this is a cool, interesting movie, which was the la- you know, we thought it would be all you know one star and four star reviews, and instead we got a lot of three and three and a half star reviews. And it just goes to show you like trying to predict what people's reactions are going to be. Um, is is so impossible. And if anybody ever really knew how to do that, they'd like own the movie business. Um, but we didn't. Yeah, we we figured there'd be a lot of outraged people, but generally we didn't get almost any of that. And the only and the big outrage we got. I remember we screened it. The one time we faced a challenge, which was a a. a a uh, sort of irony that Kurt, I'm sure, appreciated was when we screened it at 10, 
which is this whole society for literary freedom. And that was the one place that they jumped all over us and said, how can you make a positive movie about Nazis? And then I remember this guy getting up and saying that the term black comedy was offensive and racist. And it was like, I mean, it was so bizarre. And, and here was this audience full of people who like give awards for, for freedom and literature and speaking your mind. And they were the only people that ever like jumped on us as if we had done something bad. So, you know, it was one of those, it was an irony that would have been right out of one of Kurt's books. Um, you know, it was uh, Bob and I laughed a great deal after that screening. So it was like, okay, so the only people offended by this are sort of like intellectual liberals. <laughs> They're the only people, the people that should be completely getting this are the only people who kind of missed the whole point. Um, and it was very, very strange. One of the things that I liked in in the early part of talking about the film with you is you said, you know, this was like a great experience for you making the film and and everything like that. And I was wondering, you know, in the years since it's been finished. Uh, what has been a great experience related to the film? You know, someone coming up to you, talking to you about it, or maybe a screening or something like that. What What has been a big surprise to you about Mother Night in the years since? Well, I think one of the things that's been incredibly gratifying is that it's ha- you know it, it, it didn't have a huge theatrical life, but it, it seems to have had a really great life on on video and cable, and and I still get people coming up to me now. You know, whatever it is, twenty years almost later since its release. Um, and, you know, saying that they just saw it for the first time and how it blew them away. And, and you know, one, there, there are good and bad things about, you know, any time in, in, in history of film, but one of the things that's neat is you can make a movie, and 20 years later people are still discovering it for the first time. And, you know, when I was growing up, they didn't I mean, there were revival houses, but if you didn't seek that out, you know, once a film had its little time in the theater, it was, it was gone. And now films have lives. And I've had, you know, people come up to me and say, and, and, and an interesting array of people. I mean, I've had college students who are, you know, huge Kurt Vonnegut fans come up to me and tell me it's their favorite movie. I've had, you know, war veterans tell me that it was really moving to them and really affecting to them. I've had just sort of all sorts of just very interesting, um, interesting sort of reactions to it. I've had, you know, I've had African-Americans tell me how much they think the Black Fear of Harlem is hysterically funny, you know, and, and that was a relief because, you know, you could have easily taken that. You know, people, people generally who, the, the kind of people who are going to watch the movie seem to be the kind of people who also get the movie. And I've, I've been very happy that it seems to have a really nice life. And, you know, I, we screened it occasionally since, you know, for various thing, places or things. And, you know, people, if anything, the, the reaction has gotten warmer with time. And, and I think people, you know, appreciate it now even more than when we made it. And, and that's, that's a really, as a filmmaker, that's really exciting is that, you know, you can, you know, I live right near UCLA and I remember going to speak at something at UCLA not long ago and some kid must have been 18, 19 saying, I just saw the film and it was like his new favorite movie. And, and what a great feeling that is, you know, that, that you can, you know, speak to somebody that much later and also help bring Kurt's literature to people, you know, because I, Kurt was such a huge influence on me as a writer that if seeing the film turns on any younger people to him, that's also a really, you know, a really cool thing to feel like you can be a tiny part of. I'm so glad that they treated this movie well when it was released on DVD. This is, I wouldn't say it's a deluxe DVD. There's not an hour, you know, making of kind of thing, but that you have the various commentaries, that you have the the deleted scenes and have the deleted scenes with commentary. I, I think that they really um, did a good job when they put this out on DVD and that people can get a little bit more from the film than just the movie itself. Well, thanks. Yeah, no, I really, I love the DVD. I think they, they, I did feel like they did a great job. They really care. They put a lot of effort into it. Um, I also felt they really mastered it carefully. The, the DVD looks great. I mean, it really looks the way we wanted it to look. It looks like the film. Um, I'm a little frustrated. I'd love to see it come out on Blu-ray. 
Um, you know, because I think it's a beautifully photographed film, and I think the DVD captures that. I'd love to see a Blu-ray version of that, but but actually the DVD is one of the few DVDs I felt, certainly of any of my own work, that are close to sort of a Blu-ray level in terms of just the visual quality. And, and that was, the people who worked on the technical end were, were great, but I was also very glad they agreed to include the deleted scenes because there was some wonderful stuff done in the, that didn't make it into the film and were very close calls. I mean, David Strathairn, who's one of my very favorite actors in the world, did this brilliant job. And most of his part got cut out through no fault of his. It really just had to do with that, that it was a storyline that kind of took the, the film a little off track and came at a moment where the film was building to an emotional climax, and it was just the wrong time to go on a side trip. But that was one of the few areas where Bob and I even disagreed at all, because he wanted to keep it in the film, and I understood. I mean, he was sort of 55-45 for it, and I was sort of 55-45 against it, but we both saw the other's point, because it was this brilliant, brilliant scene, and David's work is incredible. But when we showed the film to people, they often would say, you know, you know, because we go through that process, we didn't do any like card screening, but you show the film to your friends and people you trust, and and a number of them would say, I love that scene, but it was kind of took me out of it at this emotional climax, and then it was it felt like a side step. So ultimately, we lost it, but it was this great, great work, and and I was very happy just to be able to share some of that with people, and and you know, all the things that happen when you when you, when, you know when you edit a film, you you often take out some of your favorite things. It's, I've done this now to. I, I, I keep getting all my favorite actors in the world to be in my movies, and I cut them out. So I I feel like a complete schmuck because I've done this now with David Strathairn, Ed Harris, Sandra Oh. I've ha- I've managed to get them into my movies for no money, had them do incredible performances, and then ended up leaving them mostly on the editing room floor through absolutely no fault of them or their work. But the funny thing about movies is that they're more than a collection of good scenes. They're they're really about how the flow happens, and you just sometimes have this awful dilemma where a scene is terrific, but it just doesn't work in the movie. And, you know, I've had this experience now more than once where my very favorite scene isn't in the film. So I love the whole deleted scene thing because you get to share that with people and let them see some of the work that was done that that, that, that otherwise would have gone missing. But there's also, the, you know, there's a great interview with with Nick and, and Vonnegut together, which I think is really fun. And that was something that Bob shot. And, and we just... We just, you know, there was a lot of fun stuff, and and New Line and Fine Line were very supportive because they they really liked the film. I mean, you know, even though it didn't make money for them theatrically, they really they believed in it, and so they they really wanted the DVD to be good, and they gave us the time and the money, and you know, to really try to do it the way we wanted to, and and I was very grateful for that because they could have just you know thrown it out there. I've I've been through DVD experiences that have been awful, where you know, I mean, my my second film, A Midnight Clear, for you know, has only been available in the states in this awful four three transfer and you know it's, it's just always driven me up the wall and you know nobody really cared what I thought and um, you know it's, it's been released in Europe now and you know Blu-ray and, and 185 and, 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 and all that but it's very weird when you make a movie and the only record of it in your own nation is kind of a screwed up version so I was very happy that uh, Mother Night being my next movie that, that, that they were really supportive of doing it right and creating a, a really good high def master to work off of and uh, that you know it's a good experience so if people haven't seen it they're interested in seeing it you know they can know that it is direct approved um and that, you know it came out really the way we wanted it to and right now it's going for like six dollars on amazon so nobody has an excuse to not go out and pick that up because it is so worth it one of the extras that's on there one of the deleted scenes is another bit with eichmann how did you get henry gibson to provide the voice for eichmann combo it's Adolf eichmann i'm in the cell above you 
Yes, Eichmann. Hello. You're always typing in there. Day and night, night and day. Typing, typing, typing. Is it bothering you? No. I'm a heavy sleeper. I'm only curious. Are you preparing your memoirs? Yes, a command performance for the Haifa Institute. Ah, you're a lucky man. I'm lucky. How do you consider me lucky? You can type. I'm writing mine longhand. Henry was a. I, I'm trying to remember whose idea. Henry was an was 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 an out of the box idea that I believe it was our casting director who suggested it. And the second she did, Bob and I were both like, oh, my God, what an amazing idea. And, you know, Henry wants to work. I mean, you know, he's this kind of icon figure out of the 60s and 70s. But he's also just an actor, and he wants to be doing things. And, you know, and he also was a big Vonnegut fan. And so they just they sent him the script, and he said yes immediately. And he was, he was great fun to work with. I mean, it was sadly, it was only part of a day. I mean, he came in and recorded the whole role. Um, you know, in a few hours, but he was so funny, and and that's another place where you really got that Vonnegut sense of humor. Is you know that character of Eichmann that, that, that and the way Henry played him, and the way Bob wrote it, and the way Kurt initially wrote it. You know, there's a this really dark, sly, disturbing humor to um, to the idea that you know Nick's neighbor is, is Adolf Eichmann, and you never see his face; you only hear his voice echoing in the halls, and he's kind of just you know kind of making these little dark quips, you know, and, and, and sort of being disturbingly almost likable. And, and, and that's, again, Kurt's very curdled sense of humor. Um, and Henry just caught it perfectly because that's a part that, again, you could have, you could have overplayed or underplayed. You could have made it too much of a joke or you could have made it too serious. And, and Henry just really got it right away. He understood it. Um, although I will say that when we did it on set, Bob did the voice of like me and he did a lovely job. Um, it wasn't quite, it wasn't quite Henry Gibson, but, but he, he, he was one who was, you know, feeding, uh, Nick the lines and, and, and really did a nice job of giving, giving Nick that, again, blend of humor and, and, and darkness so that he could play off of it. Um, and then we, then, then Henry recorded it to the actual scenes of Nick, but Nick had to, had to act with Bob, which while I kidded him was a like fate worse than death, Bob actually did a really good job, uh, of, 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 uh, you know, making that stuff come to life. Yeah, and he also gets one of the best lines, that whole thing about how he won't take credit for six million Jews, that he's got a few to spare. Yes, yes. Well, and that's, and that's the other interesting thing, is because in some perverse way, Adolf Eichmann becomes, for, for at least a, a, a moment, the conscience of the film. And, you know, that's a, there's a weird Vonnegutian irony for you, um, that he's really the one who, as much as anybody in the movie, reminds Nolte's character that he is, that he is partly responsible for the Holocaust. And, uh, you know, and he does it in this very sly little way, you know, and, and, cause Nolte's going on about, you know, don't you feel guilty about the six million people that you, you helped kill? And, 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 uh, Eichmann says, you know, I, 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 I can share those with you. And, and you realize the truth in that, and as does, as does Nolte's character. It's a very powerful moment, uh, you know, couched in this sort of throwaway, almost jokey line. Um, but it's really where you realize, and where Nick realizes, or Nick's character realizes, just who he has become. Um, and again, you know, Henry nailed that because, again, if you if you played the irony too heavily, it would be heavy-handed. If you didn't do enough, it would be, you know, too serious. And 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 he just 
you know, and, and it's what look, it's what he did so beautifully in the Alban films. I mean, you look at Henry in something like Nashville, and 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 how great he was at at creating this character that was sort of funny and sort of bigger than life, but still seemed like a real human being. And you know, certain actors have a real talent for that, and we really had a cast for that. I mean, if you think of it, you know, Alan Arkin, uh, John Goodman. I mean, all these these people are great at creating very funny but still very real human beings and 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 henry was just another pe- person in that kind of category that kind of rare actor who can be both bigger than life and yet real life at the same time and that's a very rare and specific talent i mean there's a lot of wonderful actors who can't do that and we were lucky enough to get the kind of people who could and that's what i think you need to do to pull off kurt vonnegut yeah kurt vonnegut really hasn't had i mean he's 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 shown in movies like mother night and in slaughterhouse five but then there have been some major missteps when it comes to adaptations of his stuff so it's he's so hit or miss when it comes to checking out the quote-unquote cinema of Kurt Vonnegut unfortunately well he's you know he's not he's not the quintessentially cinematic writer I mean I mean so much of his writing especially the later novels you know the earlier novels are more rooted in story and and character in a way that you can translate the film. But there were you know it wasn't an accident that we did one of his earliest books as a film because some of the later books just are so much about the style of writing. They're about they're about being a book that you almost can't translate it because it you take away its very identity. Um, you know I, I thought you know I, I thought Breakfast of Champions was, was was a noble attempt to do it, but it was really almost impossible because Breakfast of Champions. By nature, at least for me, its greatness is its bookness. You know, it's you can't. It's not the story. It's the way he illustrates it with the little drawings, and it's the way it's his voice as a writer. It, it, it's not really what happens. Whereas in Kurt's earlier bo- works, there, it's, the story is is strong enough that it can stand on its own. It, it's why I think Player Piano would make a terrific film. It's why I think you know Sirens of Titan could make a terrific film if, if somebody would be willing to spend the money to make it. Um, I think his later work is about being literature, and I think every time somebody's tried to take that on, it, it just doesn't translate because you lose the most important stuff. And for the sake of the story, and the story is not the important thing in those books. It's like trying to make a movie of an abstract painting. It's like, well, it's very abstractness is what's kind of special about it. Now, I haven't seen Happy Birthday, Wanda June. Have you ever tracked that one down? Yes, it's actually pretty good. Um, and, and again, that, that's, that's a little different because it came from a play. I mean, well, you know, Wanda June, Happy Birthday, Wanda June was written as a play. So translating that to cinema, you, it was already in a dramatic form. Um, but it, it's actually, it, the film is a little stage bound. I mean, you feel like you're watching a play, but it's, it's a really, you know, if you like Kurt Vonnegut, you'd probably like that film. I think it's one of the things that, I actually don't remember talking to Kurt about whether he liked it, the film of it or not, but I know he was happy with the play, and the, and, the, and the film, I think, just just basically photographs the play very, very well, and, you know, William Hickey is hysterically funny in it, and, and it, it's, it's, it's not cinematic, it's not like a translation of Kurt into film, it, it's just a, a basically, here's the experience of what seeing this play that Kurt wrote is like, but it's, if, you're, if you're a fan, it is worth try, tracking down, I don't know I don't know, God, where you'd find it. Um, I, I don't think I have a copy of it. Um, it's one of the many, many things that has never come out, I believe, on DVD, or I don't even think it came out on VHS. I remember seeing it on, on like, cable TV once. Um, but it's pretty cool. Um, it's just not, it's just, it's just, you know, it's like something you might see on PBS. It's like a, it's like a film play. Um, but that one, I think, came out pretty well, and I'm a big fan of Slaughterhouse-Five. I think the, the film Slaughterhouse-Five works really, really well. Um, but yeah, those are the only ones that I think really succeeded. And if people like to include Mother Night in that, then I'm very happy. 
Um, you know, I've been pleased that more people put it in the in the good Kurt Vonnegut adaptation category than not. So I'm I'm happy. I mean, Kurt was very happy with it, and that that was the biggest thing for me. I mean, the idea of disappointing him would have been horrible. And he ended up being a big supporter of it, and 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 you know, he hung around while we were shooting it. He agreed to be in it. Um, he, you know, he did he did press for it, and and he he seemed really to be tickled by it and to be proud of it. And that that was to me meant more than all the other reactions combined because he is the hero for me. And so to, you know, to have done it, if he had, and he's pretty ruthlessly honest. I mean, uh, I mean, he's talked about some of the films of his work, and I won't get too specific and hurt too many people's feelings, but he's talked about things that he hasn't liked of his, and he's pretty unsparing. And uh, you know, he had no shame about saying exactly what he thought. And so the fact that he was genuinely happy, to me, no matter what else happened with the film, that made me feel like, okay, we did good, because, you know, he looked at it and felt like we caught what he was trying to do. You talked about possibility of Blu-ray. You'd like to see a Blu-ray in America of it. Is because Fine Line is no longer around, is that part of the problem? Do you know sort of where the rights are and who has it, and if they have even discussed the possibility? You know, I, I haven't pursued that one in recent time. I mean, like so many things, yes, Fine Line's no longer around. Their library is now owned by, I believe, MGM. And because um, I think that's when I get residual checks where it comes from. And it's very tough because a lot of these places have stuff in their library and they're just not, you know, that that interested in doing doing things with them because the cost of putting it together and putting it out there just they don't care unless it's a big hit thing. And then occasionally there'll be this lucky thing that'll happen where somebody will break through and, 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 and decide, no, we should do this. But uh, that's one that I would like actually have on my things to do list is to kind of go to them and say, would you guys consider this? But there's also a lot of interesting sort of smaller companies. I mean, there's obviously the Criterions of the world, but there, there's now com- companies like Olive or whatever that are taking films that these big studios don't really want to bother with out of their library. And they're sort of buying the rights or, or leasing the rights to do Twilight Times doing it with some of the Woody Allen films. I mean, you know, it's 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 sort of sad because a lot of great films. And you know, I'm not trying to say that Mother Night's a great film, although I'd like to think that people would think it is. But but a lot of really you know wonderful movies don't make it to Blu-ray now or don't even make it to DVD now because the market is not what it once was. And so unless somebody feels that the title is going to guarantee to sell, they're not going to bother putting it out there. And so you've got these small companies kind of taking up oscilloscope. I mean, there's a whole bunch of them that are really kind of cool that are taking up the mantle of, look, if you guys aren't going to put out this film, can we put out the film for you? And it's like like Twilight Time just did Crimes and Misdemeanors, which is really one of my very, very favorite Woody Allen films. And, you know, it's amazing to think that here's this Woody Allen movie that got nominated for Oscars and was seen as a great film, and yet that, you know, the studio really couldn't be bothered putting it out on Blu-ray. And it took, uh, you know, a small little company, which is run by like a handful of people, to put it out in a limited edition of like 3,000 copies. But I think that's going to become more and more the reality for these sorts of films is that the big companies just aren't going to bother. But you'll have these little boutique companies saying, well, we'll take that on. And so my whole, I'd love to find that from other night. I mean, that's definitely on my things that I'd like to get done in the next couple of years list of, of sort of personal projects. Uh, I'd like to do that with a couple of my films because really none of them have made it to, the Blu- to Blu-ray in the States. And, and, you know, Midnight Clear is on Blu-ray, but only in England and Germany and in all over Europe, but not here in the States. Uh, but it is tough because there's usually split white holders, and, and that's also what makes it not worth it for people because, you know, it becomes a thing of, well, we own 25% of it, and, you know, Fine Line now, you know, the people who own New Line own a part of it, and so you've got to get all these people to sign off on it, and nobody's going to make any money because there's so many of them, and 
so that's the other thing that becomes a headache is that you know rights get transferred around. And people don't. I mean, I was actually once I was checking up on on the Chocolate War, my first film, and uh, about getting it onto DVD, which I finally managed to do a few years back. And you know, literally, I believe again it was MGM. They they didn't know they owned it. In fact, they kept insisting to me that they didn't, and they kept saying, "Yeah, you really do." And they're like, "No, we know we own. We don't." And and they're like, "Oh, no, you're right. We do own that." So you know, you've got this very strange thing in film now where. You know, as companies have come and gone and gone out of business and bought each other's libraries out, you know, you've got people running that stuff that don't even know what they've got. Um, and so it's why you see such a strange array of films not out there that you think would be. Um, and, you know, I guess it's up to us as filmmakers to kind of just do our best to beg and plead and knock on doors and say, I know that, you know, you're not going to get rich on this, but, you know, you'll, be, you'll, you'll make your money back and, and would you at least, you know, do it. But, but they're big corporations and they're not interested in that. And that's why, again, I think it's the, the smaller companies that now are giving me hope to take some of these titles, some of the films I've made and go to them and say, look, you know, would you work with me to get, to get these things done? But even there, it's tough because... I've had a company interested in working and doing a midnight clear domestically, but again, the rights thing has just been messy and complicated, and um, it's taken years, and we have still haven't got made it, been able to make it happen. So uh, it's trickier than people out there would think. You know, it's it's you know a lot of it's the films that were made up until about the year 2000. Also, the rights were often given to uh, for DVD only for a certain number of years. It was only around 2000 that everybody started realizing, wow, we really need to get rights that exist in, per- in perpetuity in all media. Um, so instead, you've got these contracts that have like leases that are like 10 or 15 years, and then who those rights revert to after that becomes very muddy indeed. And so a lot of films from the 70s, 80s, 90s have taken forever to come out or haven't come out because who even owns them becomes this big legal Michigan. So... You know, it's 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 it, it's it's an ongoing mess that I hope gets cleared up because there's a lot of great movies that I'd love to see get out there. Not not, not only my own, but other people's. That means I'm I'm a, I'm a huge film fan. So there's a lot of movies that you know I get excited when they finally make their way to, to Blu-ray or DVD. That's just something that really disturbs me and makes me sad. It, you know, it's not a can of peas in the storeroom, kids. It's a film, and you should have a little more respect for it and know what you have in stock in your library. And yeah, that would make sense. But I mean, again, you're dealing with things that are huge corporations that are now part of huge corporations, and they get these libraries, and 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 they, you know, you don't get the people, you know, and and the people who do love the films are often not there anymore. I mean, it's it's been very sad because some of the archivist type people who really put you know stuff out with care and 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 love have kind of been pushed out of those companies and replaced by kind of bean counter accountant types that. You know, not only don't know what they have, but don't really care. All they care about is, well, is there something we can make a bunch of money on? Um, and, and and that's been a sort of sad thing to watch happen. And you still do find some of these companies, people that are passionate, but a lot of them, you know, they're like they they don't care if it, there's a DVD or not. They don't care if it looks good. They don't care if it, you know, it, it's it's kind of frightening and sad. You know, that is, I mean, if there's any art form that's sort of America's sort of heritage, it's it's filmmaking. And and right now, there's a bit of a a, a sad gap in, in how that stuff's being curated. Is there anything you want to add about Mother Night that we forgot to ask you about over the last hour and a half? <laughs> Man, um, uh, uh, nothing, nothing that comes to mind. Um, it's like I've been, I've been talking so much, God knows what I didn't say. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, just, just I, you know, I, I really appreciate you guys taking the time to talk about it, because if it does inspire some people to take a look at it, that would be really exciting for me, and you know, I, I hope people do, and you know, I hope it inspires them to take a look at the film, and in turn, I hope that maybe inspires them to read some of Kurt's books if they haven't. And and you know, I I think 
I, I think there's an audience out there that can still be tapped and grown for not only the movie, but for one of the great American writers. And, and a lot of people know and love his work, but there's a lot of people that don't. So if this conversation you know, gets people to look at the film and some of the books, then I really am grateful for you guys taking that time. So we're going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show. Jason Stilwell wanted to be a champion, but he's having a tough time at school. No excuses here, mister. Let's see what you're made of. And a tougher time at life. Stay out of the way, punk. She's mine. But Jason has a dream. Someday I'm going to be just like him. He needs a little help. And a lot of guidance. Now your training begins. He's just found the best. Set the images all in your head. The result is power. Now, Jason's getting serious. Getting fast. Power. And getting competitive. He wanted to be a champion. You're good. I get better. Never expected to be a hero. No retreat, no surrender. That's right, we're back next week looking at Jean-Claude Van Damme's action flick, No Retreat, No Surrender. Thanks again to Mary Kenny, Gregory D. Sumner, and Bob Whitey for taking the time to talk to us. You can find out more about their books and work and all that other fun stuff over at our website, projection-booth.com. Also, huge thanks to Keith Gordon for coming on and co-hosting with us this week. So the last time that you were on, we were talking about Woody Allen's Love and Death, and you had mentioned that you were working on a possible project with Christopher Nolan. And I know you've been super busy lately. It's been a little difficult to even get a hold of you. What kind of stuff have you been working on, and what do you have in the hopper, sir? Well, I mean, most of it I've been doing the last like eight months, which is why you, why I've been so bad about returning phone calls and, and emails, and I apologize. I've just been doing a run of sort of interesting TV stuff, which has been, I mean, television sort of going through this wonderful golden age, which, of course, for me as an independent filmmaker, is a double-edged sword because I think it's hurt indie movies. I mean, TV's become this place where you can tell really interesting, grown-up, complicated stories, but that's made for a lessening of the audience to who want to go out to see the, to the movie theater to see those things. So, um, But I've gotten to work on everything from Homeland to this new show on HBO called The Leftovers, which is, I think, quite remarkable, to Masters of Sex, to, you know, and I bet it's just been going from show to show, you know, working with wonderful actors and great writers, and that's been really exciting. Um, but it's, it's been frustrating because it's, it's been time away from working on my own projects. So I'm going to hopefully get some time to get back into, you know, I've got my own feature projects that I want to get going. Certainly the, the project with Chris Nolan being one of them, but I've got also some of my own, you know, smaller projects that I want to get back to. But it's hard when you're approached with this really good material and really good actors and really good writing and a chance to go and make a, basically make a one hour movie in, in a few weeks. That's, you know, a pretty great way to make a living. 
Um, but like I say, it's as an independent filmmaker, it's it's a double-edged sword because I love what's happened to television, particularly cable television. But it's demonstrably cut into the audience for indie films. So it's a it's it's a great thing and an awful thing from from my side. Um, but I feel lucky that I've gotten to work on a lot of you know the more interesting TV out there. But yeah, I still want people to go see like indie movies. So please do. Yeah, indie movies are still very important. I, I had a question for you. Years and years ago, we were talking about uh, some of your dream projects. You were talking about doing an adaptation of a Jim Thompson book. Is there any movement on that? There, there isn't. I mean, I wish I could say there was, but there really hasn't been. Um, you know, uh, that one has sort of been sitting a little bit on the back seat because the the failure commercially of the killer inside me you know even though it had a lot of interesting people involved with it and the fact that that's his best known book and the fact that it came out and didn't do well commercially was not very helpful for the cause of getting a lesser known book of his that's even harder to do and stranger made so i kind of put that one aside for the time being and it doesn't mean i won't revisit it but but that one's sort of not on the short list of things that I'm focused on right now. Right now I've got um, sort of three projects of mine that, that I'd really love to see happen. But really having to reimagine them in the new climate of how independent films are made. Basically, the, the world that, that Mother Night was made, and Mother Night was made for like $5 million, that world has become almost non-existent. I mean, there's a few films made in that kind of price range every year, but it's, it's, it's become almost none because it's a very hard place to actually make your money back from. Uh, DVD and video sales aren't what they once were. Things, you know, foreign sales aren't what they once were. So, really, what you tend to see is movies either over 15 or 20, or well under a million dollars. And you've got people like John Sales making movies for $200,000 or Paul Schrader. And so, I'm taking some of these projects of mine that I love and going, okay, can I drop a zero off the budget? And in the world of the new technologies of video, and you know, can I make this film for $400,000 instead of $4 million? And I, I don't think I'm alone in that. I think a lot of you know sort of indie filmmakers are having to re, recalibrate for a world that that you can make things less expensively, but you have to find clever ways to do it. And you know that's that's sort of a lot of what my challenge is now is is in this universe when financing is much harder to come by, and unless you have you know Brad Pitt, and in fact even if you do have Brad Pitt, still getting five million dollars to make an adult drama is not easy. Um, so it's really about re-examining those projects and going, how do I make this, you know, for a tenth of what I thought I had to? Um, and, you know, it's, it's an interesting learning curve. Uh, it's kind of starting all over yet again. You know, some filmmakers have gone the crowdfunding route, and I was wondering what your take on that is. Is that something that you would ever consider, or do you think that's just sort of a, a hip thing for now and it's going to fade out? Well, no, I think the crowdfunding route is fabulous. I think you have to have the right project and the, and the right thing. I mean, I think, you know, the things that have succeeded most on crowdfunding have had flashy names attached to it or have been, you know, super micro-budget. I mean, it's either been people making a move for $50,000 or it's they've had, you know, a big star or somebody, you know, attached to throw around so that people go, oh, I know who that is. You know, I think when you're talking about sort of an independent movie that doesn't yet have a, a cast in place and all that, it's much harder to get the kind of money that you would need to actually make the film. But, for example, if I needed finishing money, on a project, let's say I put a project together and I got three-quarters of the money from a source and I needed to finish that financing, I absolutely could see going through the crowdfunding route. I have friends who've just funded a documentary you know, through Kickstarter. I mean, there's, I mean, I think crowdfunding funding is amazing, but I think it only works for exactly the right kind of projects. Um, and I think that's usually things that are 
you're well under a hundred thousand dollars, or like I say, think something like like the, well, the Veronica Mars situation, where you had a story where you had millions of fans waiting to jump on it. The stuff in the middle is not proven as successful in terms of getting the money to get films made, um, and, and it, it's just hard. Look, getting I, I teach a lot. One of the things I always say to the students is, you know, to be an independent filmmaker means you're really a professional fundraiser who directs as a hobby, and that's kind of the sad truth of it. Um, you know the the way you get the money to make the films is always evolving, but it's never easy. Uh, but but I'm I hope crowdfunding becomes a, a bigger source of funding. I mean because God knows we need to replace some of the ones that have faded away. Uh, it's uh, you know but it keeps evolving. I mean I've been in the business now 35 years, and all I know is that everybody's always wrong about what's going to rise, what's going to fall. What I mean VHS was supposed to be the end of filmmaking, and instead it was the biggest boon to independent filmmaking that ever happened because it financed a whole generation of independent filmmakers. So you just never know how things are going to keep you know go. Well, thanks again, Keith, for coming on the show and talking about Mother Night. It's always great to talk to you. And also want to thank you for listening. You can return the favor by leaving a review on iTunes or commenting on the website projection-booth.com or sharing your favorite episodes, such maybe as this one, on Facebook, Twitter, or any other means you have because, you know what, it really means a lot.
It was not guilt that froze me. I had taught myself never to feel guilt. It wasn't the fear of death. I had taught myself to think of death as a friend. It was not the thought of being unloved that froze me. I had taught myself to do without love. What froze me was the fact that I had absolutely no reason to move in any direction. <laughs> <laughs> 